President Ariano, can she hear you? Uh, Pauline, I think you're muted. I just had a question about Commissioner Shorter. Should we wait for her or should we um, go ahead and start? We have quorum, I think. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, and then if Commissioner Shorter joins, we'll just make note of that. All right. So now we will call this meeting to uh, of the Juvenile Probation Commission to order. Today is Wednesday, January 12th, 2022. The time is 5.35 p.m. Madam Secretary, can you please call the roll? You guys can hear me, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's not me. I think it's Pauline. Yes. We can hear you. Um, perhaps, Shanna, uh, is it is it possible for me to call the roll? Uh, since it seems like Pauline's having difficulty, and maybe she can just make note of it since we're recording the meeting. Yeah, I think that's fine. Great. Um, so let me go through. President Ariano, I am present. Vice President Chu. Present. Commissioner Margaret Brodkin. Here. Present. Commissioner Toye Moses. Present. I'm here. Commissioner, Commissioner, thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Andrea Shorter, I don't see her. Um, so we'll just note that she is not currently present. And uh, Commissioner James Spingola. Yeah. Thank you. We have a quorum. Uh, now we'll go ahead and take item two, which is uh, the resolution uh, to allow uh, teleconference meetings under California Government Code Section 54953E. This is, again, the resolution that allows us to meet uh, remotely via teleconference uh, because of the ongoing state of emergency. Uh, I'll remind the commissioners that we just need to have a motion to approve. Uh, this so we can go ahead and start the meeting. So do I have a motion to approve this resolution to allow ourselves to meet remotely? So move. Second. Thank you. Uh, and now I'll just go ahead and do a roll call vote for the motion. President Ariano, I'll vote aye. Vice President Chu? Aye. Uh, Commissioner Margaret Brodkin? Aye. Commissioner Toya Moses? Aye. Commissioner Andrea Shorter? Still hasn't joined, so we'll just uh, go on to Commissioner James Bengola. Motion passes and we can now meet. Uh, now we'll go to item three. Uh, this is general public comment. Uh, and um, before we go ahead and open it up, I'll just note to members of the public to press star three to raise their hand uh, and be added to the line for general public comment. And then if our secretary can hear I just wanna double check to see if we have any emails or voicemails. Um, and at this time, I'll go ahead and open up general public comment. I can hear, I'm sorry, I'm having internet issues and there are no emails. Great, thank you. Are there any members of the public with their hands raised for general public comment at this time? Uh, no hands raised. All right, uh, we will go ahead and close general public comments.
And do we have, oh, we do have, um, I believe it's Patty Lee to present in uh, stead of uh, James Bell tonight for our, the closed juvenile hall work group. Is that correct? That is correct. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Miss Lee. Um, and I think I'll go ahead, if you are ready to present, I'll hand you uh, the floor virtually. Thank you. I'm hoping that um, the second secretary or whomever is taking over can share the PowerPoint that I sent to all of you. Pauline, can you hear us? I think Emmanuel was our backup for Pauline, but he uh, might have. I don't have yes, the PowerPoint. I'm, I'm, I'm sending it right this second. Just give okay. me one second, please. Perfect. And that way we can have it uh, displayed in the meeting. While that's happening, this is Commissioner Shorter. I just wanted to. Uh... Thank you, Commissioner. Uh, we'll just note. I'm present. I was having severe technical problems <laughs> with WebEx, my favorite, favorite it won't platform. Be, it won't be the first or the last time, uh, I can assure I'm you. I hope so. it'll be the last. <laughs> <laughs> but we appreciate again. you joining. Thank you so much, Commissioner. We're just right now waiting for uh, the presentation to be uh, put on screen by our um, moderator so that we can uh, have Patty Lee present on the closed juvenile hall work group updates. Emmanuel, you should have it now. Could one of us do it? I mean, I'm happy to. Margaret, do you have it? I do you want me to do it? Do you have it? Uh, do you have it? Sure. Yeah, put it up. Hold on, let me find it. Yeah, I was looking in my email for it, but. I definitely have it. I think I have it. I feel like I have it. Wait, hold on. I have it. Wait. You got it? I do. Hold on one second. Let me see. Can I have the um can I have the power? Oh, it looks like um it's on. Oh, it's on. Okay, good. You got it without me. Great. Thank you. Um thank you for your patience. Um I know that I've tried to share on WebEx and then I lose power. So um uh First of all, a good evening, everybody. Happy New Year. Um, thank you for inviting us to present and provide you with a summary and answer any questions you have regarding the final draft final report of the closed juvenile hall work group. And I am Patty Lee. I was a chair of the juvenile hall work group, and I am the managing attorney at the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. So if we could just move to the next slide, please. So uh, you all know of the ordinance that was passed by the Board of Supervisors and the uh, ordinance required closure of Juvenile Hall by December 31st, 2021. 
um, and that community alternatives would be improved to accommodate um, young people in the justice, uh, juvenile justice system. Consultants were hired, Haywood Burns Institute, James Bell, I believe who spoke to you at the last calling and could not be here this evening. And David Muhammad from the National Institute for Criminal Justice Reform. Um, and uh, we worked together, many of the, those that I see uh, here on my screen tonight uh, for the almost close to two years. So if we could have the next slide, please. So the, the uh, scope of the report and what our duties involve, uh, the legislative mandate and they enabled the work group and we had 15 members that were formal members of the work group approved by the Board of Supervisors um, to make propo proposals regarding uh, a rehabilitative non-institutional place of detention and while at the same time expanding community alternatives. And um, in terms of the rehabilitative non-institutional place of detention, it was also to accommodate the mental health and educational supports for youth who would have to be detained by the court. Expanding community alternatives applies not only in the community, but also having community alternatives inside of the new rehabilitative home-like setting. Um, and I think what's important to note is uh, in the asterisk section of the PowerPoint, the legislation did not give us, the work group members, the power to implement the proposals. Uh, and that power best uh, with the Board of Supervisors. So if we could go to the next slide. Um, the Board of Supervisors also uh, is requ required to look at the budget and to reinvest funds to create the non-institutional place of detention, but also to um, fund programs uh, that are not only the place of detention, but non-institutional residential homes. Um, and that any of the homes that are developed uh, have um, qualities of youth development, uh, positive youth de development. Um, and the recommendations that came forward from the work group was that whatever is created, it has to be co-designed and co-led um, with youth programming in the facilities. Um, one of the um, stick sticking points and still continues, I believe, is the capacity needs for non-institutional um, place of detention. The considerations for the, uh, the home-like setting um, is in the report, but just so you all know what were the considerations and the components that the Board of Supervisors have to consider is the actual physical plant, the location of the plant of the home-like setting, security levels, um, space functions, uh, staffing, including training, transportation, uh, going to and from court uh, to the facility, um, 
and uh, the programming in within the facility, which would include behavioral management, but with a positive youth development model. Um, and the major portion, once it goes to the supervisors, involves labor. Um, and this is a meet and confer process. So if we could go to the next slide. So I think that what's really important for us, and these are just the bullet points, I invite you to please read the report. It is 88 pages. Um, and uh, if you go to the table of contents, you can um, focus on the areas that you have questions about. But city and policies um, must be changed regarding program utilization. So it calls for structural change in, in many um, focus areas. Structural change for early interventions, change for coordinating program utilization, and this applies not only within the facility, but also in the community. Uh, structural uh, change to program funding practices. We heard a lot through the listening groups that there are a number of very credible programs in the community where our youth reside, youth and families reside, that do not receive funding. The mom and pop programs uh, that were mentioned uh, on many occasions in listening sessions. Uh, structural change for residential bed space. So that's actually addressing uh, the components of the alternative home-like setting. And then uh, structural change for behavioral and mental health. Um, next slide, please. So what is the reimagined approach to expanding community alternatives? And these were the topic areas um, that we engaged in many discussions, including um, having field trips and listening sessions. So addressing racial and ethnic disparities. And I wanna point out um, the data that was um, provided in the report. For Latino use, uh, they are six times more likely than white youth to be detained. And 48% of youth, Latino youth referred for detention are detained. For black youth, they are 38% more likely to be detained than white youth. And 65% of black youth referred are detained. And disparities are really acute with black girls. They are 39 times more likely to be de detained than white youth and other girls. Um, public safety improved with well-being for youth and families. Uh, well-being advocate, I'll talk a little bit more in uh, later slides, well-being commit, uh, committee, and then centers for well-being and youth development. Uh, if we could go to the next slide. So this is a visual of why we need to, to close Juvenile Hall. And I don't know if you can um, see the, the, um, the captions on it, but with the current Juvenile Hall, youth are isolated 
And um, it is a setting that really um, is not conducive to well-being um, and it is more institutionalized. And the hope is in the second half where we have the colored graphic that the um, center exists within a community. And the community, as you can see in the graphic, you have a more home-like setting. You don't have bars on the windows. You have windows with curtains. You have uh, beds. Uh, you have recreation areas. You have an area where families can truly interact uh, with their um, children who have been ordered by the court to uh, be de de detained. Next, please. And this is a chart that um, addresses the issues of structural well-being. And what was important to note in this chart is that we have different points of contact. And so in this chart, we follow the point of arrest. And in the point of arrest, what's important is that it, the well-being advocate is immediately with any youth who is um, brought into the system and works with that youth throughout their engagement in the system. And the hope is that with the well-being advocate, who is a credible messenger, that that well-being advocate can divert youth away from further system contact uh, to com community-based um, services and programs, um, which we're hoping as we move forward in creating a new home-like setting, that we also expand those diversion options and um, community programs to support diversion. And for youth who are um, placed on probation by the courts, but are in the community. Uh, we also hope that the community programs work very closely with the youth in the, in the home-like setting. Um, and the hope is also to address uh, harm persons and to enhance and expand restorative justice programs. Um, the courts can be part of the well-being framework, and I do feel that we've had a start with the well-being framework with um, what we call child, child family team meetings that we have found have been very beneficial to youth and families where you have a team of support, including um, the prosecutor and community-based organizations and the court where you sit down with the youth and family and talk about what would work and what hasn't worked and addressing uh, issues as it, as they come up. Um, the Another proposal is also developing a well-being uh, committee and it would be a team of folks working towards um, a roadmap to well-being based on first contact with youth in the system and working with the youth and families either through diversion or in uh, in secure uh, uh, facility or in treatment or in diversion programs. Um, and so uh, there is also the possibility as you go down the road map here, the Center for Wellbeing and Development, um, there is that needs to be sussed out, but the, the whole framework of the new system is really creating a well-being framework 
for young people and communities and justice uh, partners. And, and the hope is that with re-entry, that it's not only re-entry into the community, but it, it's re-entry and um, diversion and not even touching the system. And so um, I, I think a major recommendation um, that has come forward uh, is also to have flexible funding for young people and their families. Um, we are addressing these issues of flexible funding and general income funding for our foster care youth who are in AB 12 right now. So I believe that there is a start right now in terms of what we as system partners are engaged in. And I think it does provide us with um, um, a framework of how we move forward with flexible funding. And, and that funding would come from the reinvestment of monies as we close um, Juvenile Hall. So if we could have the next slide. So the proposals, um, that came from a lot of discussion um, back and forth, a number of committees. We started off with five committees. We boiled it down to two committees and uh, we had listening sessions and we went out into the community and many, many, many ideas were presented. They are all attached to the appendix of the final draft. And the proposals are organized by category. Uh, so I think it makes for easier reading, but I would encourage people to read the proposals, which starts on page 72. And um, then you can digest the rest of the uh, report, which supports the proposals. So if we could have the next slide. So these are the proposals, and um, they are in, they're actually in the table of contents. They start on page 72 of the final draft, but the proposals regarding diversions, um, the big point here that I saw was uh, a recommendation of diverting at least 80% of the youth that touch the system. Um, proposals regarding uh, reviewing charging decisions. This is not only charging decisions by the police, because when the police detain a youth, if they charge a serious um, um, offense, what we call our 707B offenses, this uh, requires the probation officer to take that youth uh, into custody uh, for a detention hearing. So if the pol police and, and prosecutors also charge lesser charges that are not a 707B, it offers much more discretion uh, for the probation department uh, to consider uh, releasing the youth or diverting the youth. Um, proposals to reduce reliance on detention for warrants, that work is ongoing already. Um, the chief has met with uh, systems partners. We actually received a list of youth on warrants and um, the courts allowed us as the uh, defense attorneys to add on to calendar so that the youth would not have to turn themselves in. That was up to the court. 
Um, but as it stands right now, um, when there is a warrant, the probation department is required to take the youth into custody. And I'm hoping that we'll be working on some policies with the court that we do not have automatic detention. Um, proposal regarding limiting time on probation. And this really is based on um, best practice uh, recommendations by the Casey Foundation. Um, legislation that was pending uh, to um, have probation last only six months uh, for youth. Um, proposals reducing reliance uh, for detention for out-of-home placement. Um, and for those that work in the system, uh, when youth who are facing or committed to out-of-home placement they're usually in custody, I would say almost 100% of the time. And um, unfortunately, they end up staying in custody for a while until um, probation is able to place them in appropriate um, uh, foster care placement. And sometimes that can take weeks, if not months. And these youth are not technically um, on detention status, um, but probation has also worked on a pilot program to place those youth who are waiting for placement into uh, foster care homes. Uh, and I believe Chief Miller can address that. Um, proposals for expedited and same day detention hearings. Um, this may require a legislative fix and Chief Miller and I have spoken a little bit about this, but it's something that I feel that um, we could work on, especially now when we have everything virtual, it would not be so difficult to have a virtual court um, appearance in the evening or even on the weekends. Um, proposals expanding detention alternatives. Um, we already have some of those. There are um, evening reporting centers. There's um, the uh, DDAP program run through CJCJ. Um, but I, the hope is to really expand those alternatives and, and have those alternatives in the community with the community-based organizations that work with our youth and families. Um, proposal regarding unaccompanied minors, and th that really is to ensure that minors, those youth have a place to stay and that they have resources and that they have assistance to immigration advice. Um, with the youth that we represent, we do have an immigration unit and we do provide immigration assistance for those youth. Um, and then uh, the, the last one is proposals regarding the non-institutional place of detention. That's a biggie for, for all of us right now, because as you know, we are now January 11th uh, and Juvenile Hall has not closed. Um, we were not able to um, find an appropriate site, but those sites that were addressed by the work group members were uh, Edgewood and 1055 uh, Pine Street. Um, but the recommendation here is for the Department of Real Estate uh, to work uh, closely with the Board of Supervisors because the components of the um, non-institutional home have already been um, 
discussed and those uh, proposals that I mentioned to you early will be before the supervisors and it's something that the real estate department will have to look at um, to meet those requirements as well as complying with the Board of State and Community Corrections and meeting the approval of the courts. Um, and the next slide. So, okay, I've already talked about community alternatives and um, well-being alternatives to detention. That was in the roadmap earlier in the, um, the graphic. And then the proposed timeline is actually the last slide. Um, okay, so this may be ambitious, especially since we are not out of COVID. <laughs> And um, things are really closing up right now, but uh, I don't need to read this for, for you, but there is a phase one for one to six months, a phase two, 18 months, and those are the structural changes that we talked about. And then phase three is uh, 24 months, um, reimagining new practices, protocols, structures, uh, addressing racial equity, you know, we should be do we are doing that now uh developing uh fully developing the well-being uh framework um for advocates the committee uh possibly a well-being center uh for inside whether it's in the new home-like environment and definitely outside uh in the community as we expand community alternatives and alternatives to detention so I have just completed this slide and PowerPoint, and I would I thank you for your patience, and I would like to know if you have any questions or concerns. Thank you, Ms. Lee. Um, before I open it up for questions, Chief, uh, do you want to add anything uh, to, to Ms. Lee's presentation as well? Uh, uh, yeah, I think just a few things to add on. Um, Patty, thank you for doing that. And sure. And, and, and I really appreciate you, appreciate you acknowledging the, the kind of work we've been doing around warrants. We are going to actually start meetings with the court in earnest when we have our new judge in a few weeks to talk about how to really institutionalize it. The pilot program with foster care and the unaccompanied minors um, and the work that's already been done. So I, thank you. The only things I think I would only add a couple things. One is. Um, and I, I, I don't think you said this, Patty, so I'm going to add that my understanding is that the presentation to the board will be on February 11th at the um, Youth, Young Adult and Families Subcommittee of the board, uh, which meets once a month on Friday mornings. So it's Friday, February 11th in the morning. Well, probably starting in the morning. I imagine it'll be a very long hearing. Um, Patty, I don't know if you're doing this presentation there or if it's James. I will I will be there and I'm hoping that Ch James and David Muhammad will be there as well as, well as um, Director uh, Cheryl Evans of the Human Rights Commission, but I will definitely be there um, oh. and address any of the questions that, that uh, individuals have, but definitely it, I believe this is chaired by um, uh, Supervisor Ronan. Right, exactly. Um, and so I feel like we got a sneak peek tonight, so I appreciate it. Sure. Uh, so February 11th, and we've been trying to get the word out to community members who may want to be there. 
And then the only other things I just wanted to acknowledge for the commission, um, like, like Patty said, you know, there were some locations offered in the report. You know, there's 1 on pine street, 1055 pine. There's Edgewood. There's having the real estate department find some single family homes. And then a discussion that came up kind of later on in the process, which was looking at kind of like industrial type large spaces that could be modified. And then I just wanted to note for the commission that in. I would say the last month or so, there's also been discussion kind of coming up more about whether there would be any uh, use of the vacant land here, right? Whether there would be construction on this property, which obviously the city already owns and still owes a lot of money on. So it's come up. We've had I've had some members of the board uh, staff ask if they could see the space. Talk to public defender's mm -hmm. office about it a little bit too. Just just because it's starting to come up in conversation as a fifth piece of discussion. So I wanted to share that with you. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to note is that we, uh, like Patty noted there, we, the report doesn't settle on kind of one number of beds. Um, and during the course of the um, process, uh, JPD provided an assessment on the number of beds we thought we would need based on, um, you have it, we've shared it with you. And we did go back and redo that, looking at kind of the numbers over the last couple of years, and also looking at the added responsibility of uh, DJJ closure and what that means for San Francisco. Um, and what we came up with was really assessing that we think to be a functional space um, that we were looking at 29 beds. So I'm saying 30 beds for the purpose of this conversation. So I just wanted to acknowledge that we did some updated data analysis and that's where uh, we recommended that the report does not settle, of course, on one number. There was not consensus about it in the process. So we're happy to share updated uh, data with all of you. Um, and then, you know, I'm also happy to answer questions folks may have about the kind of approval process for a new facility or anything like that. If that's anything Patty wants to punt to me on the space stuff, I'm happy to do. Thank you. Thanks, Chief. And thank you, uh, Ms. Lee. I, I, um, the only question I had was, uh, I, I really love the um, the chart, the two slides where it outlined the well-being um, going from A to B. Um, I thought it was very helpful um, just to understand how the proposed process would work. I, my only question is, uh, maybe it's to both um, Patty and to the chief is, are there other, um, jurisdictions that have and i'm recognizing that san francisco is its own unique place and you know we're not a one size fits all but are there any other jurisdictions who have um already done something like this that use that same approach of well-being um because i find it very interesting the that approach patty do you want to answer or do you want me to um i think you can answer because i i thought where you were going um president ariano was at um are there any other jurisdictions have closer juvenile hall and tried to create a, a new um home-like environment you know with with the well-being framework but um chief are you aware sure so um, i i can tell you a little bit of what i'm aware of and you know and and uh and I would be remiss if I didn't say that, like, the way this is laid out is kind of a series of proposals, right? And in this document, not kind of one concrete plan. And this is a really interesting part of it. So I think the closest 
a parallel I would draw, Patty, is in Los Angeles, yeah. right? So I know in LA, a lot of the work they've been doing is about creating um, this kind of process that sits more in community. They've obviously they've done a lot of diversion work in Los Angeles as well. Um, and we're happy, I'm happy to share with the commission the kind of their version of the like re really kind of reimagining their justice system down there because it does rely heavily on the this kind of a well-being advocate type role. Um, I don't know if the details are exactly the same. And Patty, I don't know if you do either, but that's the jurisdiction I would point to that has kind of undertaken a similar, uh, very heavily community-driven model. Yeah, and the whole goal was really to sh shrink uh, the footprint of probation and to uh, place it in the community. Um, and actually, one of our presenters was the head of the diversion program. I don't know the formal name of it, who presented to our work group members. And I found um, it was really informative and they really have expanded diversion. And I will say in Los Angeles, the police actually engage in diversion of youth that they detain. They have that discretion to divert. And um, it doesn't result in a rap sheet or any contact with the system. Um, so they've been doing that for years. Um, and uh, we, we um, probation, uh, my office, uh, uh, the prosecution, we have been engaged with the police de department and CART in developing a police diversion program as well. Gabe Cabillo has been sitting on, in those meetings. And I was hoping that we would start this year, but um, unfortunately, Commander Walsh was reassigned, and he was our leader in that. So, so hopefully, we will um, we will uh, start that process again soon. I thought we were pretty close to completion. We even had the referral forms for the police uh, to send to CART. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think one of the interesting things. Um, President Ariano is that when that program got its initial beginnings in LA, it was actually when Chief Scott was still there. So he has a lot of um, support for that kind of a model because he really was there during implementation and saw it in action. I do think one of the hard parts, Patty acknowledged that kind of 80% diversion figure. And I think one thing that's hard is that uh, LA, I think, has a lot more youth contacts with police than we do. Um, and one thing, I mean, which is a good problem for us, right? I think one thing we've seen during the pandemic, you've seen the numbers of arrests coming in every month, they're very low. So we wanna keep it that way <laughs> and maybe even get lower, right? But we're already starting with, um, fortunately, I think partly due to the pandemic, right? A pretty concentrated number. So the police, we're not seeing a lot of low level contacts at this point. So to Patty's, one of Patty's points, I think it's, you know, what is the uh, police appetite for what kind of cases would they divert? Which will be really interesting to see if we uh, can get to that. And I, I will say, sorry for interrupting Chief Miller. I will say that based in, on our uh, experience in practice, with our uh, Miranda phone, because we're available 24 seven, seven days a week uh, for officers when they detain youth, uh, they'll call, many of them call the hotline. And we talk to the officers, we talk to the youth, and there's been many cases where the officers will just say, well, we're not, we're just gonna release them. 
we're just waiting for the parents to come, but we thought we should call the hotline. So I, I believe that those diversion decisions are occurring right now. They're not formally occurring with this process that we developed, but we are seeing that happen in real time through our Miranda calls. I totally agree. That's really helpful context. Um, thank you um, to both of you for that. And I had no idea about Los Angeles. That'd be great. Um, if we can, I mean, I don't know if the individual that presented um, to the closed juvenile hall work group um, could do it remotely. Um, since we are meeting remotely, I know maybe it's a, a bit more feasible, but uh, to have that um, presenter perhaps um, at a future commission meeting so that the commission could understand the model a little better and, or, or perhaps Chief Scott, if he's willing, but um, I know the police commission meets concurrently with our meeting, but um, really, really interesting uh, model. Um, love everything I saw on that on those slides. And again, thank you for the presentation and for the clarification, uh, Chief and Patty. So um, I'll open it up to the rest of the commissioners uh, who may have questions about the presentation. Hello. Is that Commissioner Moses? Yes. Yeah, go ahead, Commissioner. Well, thank you very much for a job well done under your leadership. I have a couple of questions. Maybe you can just um, tell me. The, did you put into consideration as part of your pro 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 proposal, you know, like um, funding grandparents who cares? That's one question. The other question is, could you give an example of a um, non-institutional place of um, detention? And another quick question is, what will happen to the current place we have now? Do you know? Because I know that building is probably maybe 20 or 25 years old. I remember when it was really, really worse than what we have now. Do you have the idea what will happen to it? And the last, time, last thing is about time-wise. Do you have any idea what we're talking about? I know some of these questions are probably vague, but if you can just um, explain a little bit, if you don't mind. All right. I hope I remember. That was a compound question. <laughs> I think that the first one was uh, funding for grandparents and kinship. Yeah, who cares? Uh, and and yes, there is there was discussion about having funding for grandparents. That's what we called the flexible funding uh, that would attach with the youth and family throughout their engagement uh, in the system. Um, and frankly, even some youth now, as they are moving out of the system through the extended foster care, we're trying to secure ex um, guaranteed income for them. Uh, uh, and there is a, uh, a proposal being issued by, by the state mm -hmm. um, to provide guaranteed income for youth that are in AB 12. Those are the youth that have um, moved out of foster care and then their extended foster care funding ends at age 21 and the proposal is to extend and provide funding for those youth uh, to age um, 23 i believe it is um, so so there's work ongoing for flexible funding for families and for youth um, and it certainly it was really important to many of the participants uh, in our listening sessions uh, to have that funding go directly to the families. Wonderful. 
Okay, so that was the first question. Uh, right. The second one was what, Commissioner? Yeah, just a non-institutional place of detention. Can you give an example of that briefly? Well, there isn't one right now in San Francisco. I, uh, you know, I know that um, we we did have uh, the boys and girls shelter. Right. It is uh, non-institutional. It definitely is home-like. I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to visit either uh, the girls' home, which has now closed, that was on Euclid, or the bo boys' home over um, in the avenues on Clement Street. But um, those are really home-like, non-institutional um, settings for our kids where the, the judge would place the youth there instead of in lockup. And they had, um, you know, it, it is home-like. They cook their own food. Um, they have, um, they shared bedrooms. Um, they have a backyard. Um, and uh, many of the youth there uh, were on uh, electronic monitoring. So you could say that might be somewhat like a secure setting. But we do not have a secure home-like setting um, yet. right okay. now. Yeah, and that's what we're hoping to create. I see. And, and I'll jump in, I'll piggyback, and I know Patty's like, oh, she's going to say this. I'm going to piggyback and say that, like, those places are, they don't actually, they're not secure according to the state mm -hmm. rules. Mm -hmm. And so the big challenge for us, Commissioner, is how do you, what what is home like that also meets those state secure rules? Because the boys' home and the girls' shelter are group homes, and so they go by a different set of regulations. And that's, I think that's part of the big and, you know, really important challenge we have is how do you create something that feels different that when the judges still order secure detention meets those requirements. And, and we, and we have try, actually, we did try to create that at log cabin mm -hmm. to make it more home like and, um, and, uh, you know, painted the walls, uh, put in couches, you know, had beanbag chairs have cushions, you know, nice pillows, have um, uh, really nice bedding for the young people uh, at Log Cabin. Um, so th that was a secure setting. It's, well, it's not it secure. Wasn't. It's not but secure, it, but it, it could was, be. <laughs> it, was considered, it was considered a commitment. It was considered lockup. For, for every day that the youth spent there at Log Cabin was considered one day of lockup. For sure, so, for sure. Yeah. It's a, it was a commitment for sure. It was a commitment. Just not a secure. That's one. the closest that San Francisco came to having a, a secure home like environment. So thank you. Thank you. Um, and then to your question, Commissioner, about what happens to the current place, I think a lot of it depends on like where we wind up going with the next place, right? So in the, on the building, in the building we have right now, um, it is about 20 years old. You're right. I think it's actually less than 20. I want to say it was finished in, it says it in the report, Patty, 2005, maybe. Yeah, something um, like that. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, because of the way it was uh, financed, there's two things I would just make sure is on the commission's radar. One is that uh, we still owe about $25 million, the city on that financing. So as you all know, because you see it in our budget every year, we pay about 2.5 million a year in financing paying off that bond out of our JPD budget. And we have about 13 more years of that. Wow. Um, and then the other piece is that um, 
Some of the funding that was used to build the current hall was federal money called Violent Offender Incarceration Truth and Sentence Money, VOITIS, V-O-I-T-I-S. Um, and uh, for facilities that use that federal money, if you wanted to use the space for anything different in the future, you have to go through a process that varies that it's a continuum somewhere between either getting permission by the federal government to reuse the space um, all the way to the kind of most extreme end, which is having to pay back the federal government. So um, we don't know where we would fall on that. And that would be if you wanted to use the space up here for anything that wasn't um, a place of detention or, re or kind of reentry for the justice system. That's what that grant money was for. So we're, so we, uh, so we've been thinking about like how does how do we account for all of that in this conversation? Um, and to Patty's point, one of the things she said at the very beginning, when you think about reinvesting money back into community, right? Um, like where does that money come from if we also know we're paying this back? Okay, thank you. All right. Other questions? Commissioner Shorter? Yes. Hello, Patty. Hi, Andrea. <laughs> I am so thrilled as always to to see you. Thank you. And I'm um, happy to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Bye. Um so as has been established, no one else has done this. You know, and um, we're forging, um, you know, a new path um, here. And one of the questions that, uh, even in these in these more home-like um, settings, where youth would be, I mean, certainly we don't want to continue um, in a path that is less humane. Um, and you know an institutional environment that doesn't seem to um to be um productive or conducive to um healthy human development um but where is the where is the what i i didn't necessarily see in the report was why would this be better uh it's all theoretical so even in terms of those those cases where the kids, like for instance, on is it on Clement Street? Um, in that home setting, are the results are the the better than the kids that are in the institutional settings that exist? In other words, I'm just asking sort of as a taxpayer. Right. All sounds really great. Sounds very progressive and wonderful. Um, but show me, convince me that this is actually going to produce a better result for the youth and the community. Where where is that? Well, there is research that has been done, and I could cite it to you. Um, later, but it's research done on children that are kept in. The traditional institutional jail setting, okay, the the uh, concrete slab, the mattress on the concrete, the mm -hmm. metal toilet right, you know, in the room, 
um, the, the, the locked doors, you know, um, but really I think that, uh, that has caused trauma and harm to young people. And you can talk to any young person today. I just talked to somebody who, um, was just released and first time and, uh, in the, in the jails. Um, and I asked him, well, what was it like? And uh, that young person said it was a nightmare. I couldn't wait to get out. I was crawling out of my skin. Um, and so the and obviously, whatever setting you're at, the strength of the setting is based on the programming and the people that work with the young people. You could have the nicest, you could have the nicest home-like environment, but if you have a prison guard mentality, mm -hmm. that's going to be inherently traumatizing. Right. Right. And so, um, and and actually, we we tried to uh, back. <laughs> it's got to be at least 10, 15 years um, before we before uh, the ranch was closed. Right. Create a nicer home-like setting. And mm -hmm. I will say for the young people that I worked there with there and there, you know, we had more kids back then um, for them. They really appreciated it. Mm -hmm. Just looking at the, the merit center mm -hmm. that we have right now in juvenile hall. I don't think the kids are going there because everything's, you know, there's COVID, right? Uh, right. So right now there's isolation. But I do know that the young people like that home-like setting. Right. Uh, they, you had to earn your right to go to the merit center, mm -hmm. you know, and just sit and relax or play, you know, play games or whatever, you know, ping pong. Was there a ping pong table? It's nice. And so if you, if you treat the young people with respect and have a nice home-like setting, and then I think that they learn respect mm -hmm. okay um but there's legions of studies on the harms of a punitive uh, jail-like environment for children and and i would just add commissioner that i think a really um a really good resource for this actually is a learning session that we did as part of the djj realignment subcommittee mm -hmm. so all the sessions we did for that process are on our website we can share the link and we had an expert on how you, and the, the value and the way to have trauma-informed design in, in residential settings for kids. Her name is Dr. Monique Kamalo, and she actually goes around the country and it helps inform with how you create settings, including secure settings mm -hmm. that aren't traumatizing and by, by their design and of course by their programming and that combination of both the state, you know, the human infrastructure and the physical infrastructure create an environment that enables young people, especially young people that have had a lot of trauma to be open and able to learn and grow in all the ways we want, right? right. So exactly. I think I think that, um, and I would, the other thing I would say, even though it's not for kids, is I would offer the campus of Delancey Street Foundation as an example of how design and space tells people about their worth mm -hmm. and what we think they can be. And so mm -hmm. that's what's hard about these, uh, these concrete buildings that were a product of the early 2000s. Exactly. Say to kids, you are one step away from adult jail. 
right this is the kind of space we think you should be in and so you know i think i think there are i think there are counselors here who do incredible work and make amazing connections with our young people mm -hmm. and i do think the question to me and i said this to a lot of our staff when i first got here was what is the physical space that helps that works in the service of what you're trying to do with kids, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of against what you're trying to do with kids. Right. And so I think there yeah. are definitely lessons in that. And Dr. Kamalo, um, maybe she could even come speak here at some point because I think she's really a great expert on this exact question you're asking. Well, I think that that would be terrific. I ask not because I'm resistant to it. Uh, I'm, I'm obviously not resistant to it, having engaged. Um, um, myself and um, development and, and running of a you know diversion program that sought to um, um, you know where where possible keep youth at home and provide them with the supports and um, um, you know necessary to move them forward positively forward. So it's not me. I'm just, but I think that is, I think the reason why I ask that is because I think as we move for, further towards the implementation of this grand plan, um, Delancey Street, you know, you know how I feel about Delancey Street. I'm a huge fan and and disciple of, of Delancey Street and, and um, uh, will always be a friend of Delancey Street. Um, However, that is a that is still an um, it is a different type of setting. When we're talking about moving youth into neighborhoods, right, into those homes, I think that what um, the folks in the community need to know and we need to be prepared um, is we got to sell this. It's got to it's got to be sold beyond. Um, just the board of supervisors as it's, as it's currently comprised um, and maybe even members of this commission and 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 other stakeholders. So I'm just putting that, um, you know, as, as sort of a, a question in terms of this report as we move forward that we do um, certainly engage um, experts and uh, researchers, as you've indicated, to help um, us to you know, get that information and that's where a lot of the work will um, be. And and commissioner, the last thing I would add to that is that the other piece of this is the court. So the legislation right, says that the preside that the superior court has to actually approve mm -hmm. the location. Right. And the court and the court has communicated that it's gonna have to be a secure detention facility that meets mm -hmm. state standards. So right. there's uh, there's a lot of moving pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, and I uh, believe we can have spaces that are worthy of our kids that meet mm -hmm. all of those requirements. And I think it requires time and attention. And I'm sure we will be talking about uh, the financial investment that will be required in that at some point as well. Right. That we can make it real. Exactly. And I, uh, if I can interject here, I think it's even more important now because while we were working to close Juvenile Hall, we mm -hmm. have the you know DJJ closure, and I am on that uh, the committee with the chief on on creating the uh, secure track commitment, and mm -hmm. it was the committee's um, vote 
to co-locate those youth in whatever we create. And mm -hmm. those young people are looking at many years mm -hmm. uh, of lockup. And all the more important to create a, a well-being, home-like mm -hmm. um, uh, environment mm -hmm. for those young people who are going to spend, you know, at least three to four years. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we didn't anticipate this when the ordinance was written, mm -hmm. um, but you know, we kind of got smacked in the rear on it <laughs> yes. as we move forward. Um, yes. But I will say, you know, to the credit of the good work of, of um, uh, San Francisco and, and Justice Partners, the number of young people that are secured track commitments are very low compared to other jurisdictions. So I, I do think it's manageable. I we don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have one last question, Patty. And that is, um, there's scant mention of the role of this um, commission um, in this this um, forward movement. Uh, what do you have any particular? I mean, how how does this commission fit in? It all just seems to be something yeah. that the board of supervisors apparently will be um, approving and running. Apparently, I'm I'm not really clear according to the report what, what's the role of this commission the ordinance did not address the role of the commission in the uh -huh. closure of juvenile hall right but i think by virtue of the meetings that you've been convening and the report backs and the fact that i'm here and that chief miller is part of the work group um, and uh, hopefully is speaking uh, uh, with the uh, collective voice of the probation commission that uh, you are present um, uh, for these proposals. They are merely um, proposals, mm -hmm. and it is up to the board of supervisors to up to the board of supervisors to um, accept or reject. Um, and I would urge um, the probation commission to attend these meetings because you do have a voice and you are intimately involved uh, in the uh, work of the probation department um, in addressing policies and and the inner workings of uh, you know especially important i think in terms of the labor discussions mm -hmm. So uh, I do feel that there is a voice. It was not specifically addressed in the ordinance, but I do feel that the probation voice has been part of the entire process as well. And Commissioner, you know, the, the way it's been laid out is that this first hearing on the 11th of February, they'll hear uh, feedback from the community on the entirety of the um, report with all the kind of varying proposals that are in it and that the board will then uh, kind of take some time to dig deeper and determine, you know, in a lot of conversations and including with labor, which of those pieces it will move forward. So this is, that hearing is the beginning of a process. Um, and then uh, ultimately, I, you know, some of it, I think will be directly vested with probation to implement and some of it's done in a much bigger collaboration. Probably a great topic for the retreat. <laughs> and probation is in charge of the new um, home-like environment. That's mm -hmm. exactly. 
Thank you. Good seeing you, Andrea. <laughs> Always great to see you. Thank you. Questions or comments from other commissioners at this time? I had my hand raised. Um, Go ahead, Commissioner. So I think that uh, what you just said, this is a major topic for our retreat. Sort of what is the role of the commission in this whole thing? I, to me, the trickiest part of this is like, who's responsible for what? <laughs> and that has plagued the whole process. And the idea that somehow our board of supervisors is going to uh, preside over any kind of meaningful implementation is to me a dream. I mean, I'm going to work on it. I'm going <laughs> to do what I can. I think they should set up a, a separate, you know, regular meeting where people report back all the, I, there are about five or six departments really implicated in this with uh, sort of major responsibilities to do this. And I think it's possible legally for the Board of Supervisors to set up a structure through which there is a regular report. What's the, what has the police department done about diversion? What has you know, the health department done about you know, the various mental health pieces of this? But the biggest chunk <laughs> is juvenile probation. This is a juvenile probation system. And so one thing I, and and actually it it is true that this is in the hands of the board and the board is just going to the board, but it isn't like people have been asleep the whole time of this. I mean, our chief uh, has been busy sort of saying, well, what can I do that's in here that makes sense that we can start right away? So I'm that I'm really interested in that because I, you know, we'll spend our lifetime waiting for the board of soups. I think it's sort of a combination of what they're going to move forward and what we can just say, what, you know, what can be done that gets us closer to this uh, now. And I, you know, I think a lot, we have so many of the pieces in place. Um, for instance, this, um, what are they called? The wellness advocates? Yeah. So well-being well advocate. advocate. Yeah. So these are, this is a, I, I mean, everybody's settled on this name, but we have a lot of people in our system who are in fact well-being advocates. So it's a little bit about restructuring what we have or renaming what we have or figuring out how to organize it in a way to achieve what this, you know, what this report recommend, re recommends. So I'm excited about talking about it at our retreat, about figuring out what the probation department can do you know, moving forward on its own, not waiting for, you know, um, uh, you know, everything to, to um, evolve. So, and, and good, and good that like, you're already working with the police. We're already talking about warrants. We're already talking about a lot of this stuff. So, so that's great. Number two, I, you know, the report recommends 15 beds, our chief recommends 30. I want to know, does the 30 include the DJJ? Uh, okay, well, that's good, gets us. To, um, um, so somehow there has to be some, you know, reconciliation of that. I don't know what you have in mind for that, Patty. Um, and then lastly, I'm just heartsick about 
the the fact that we yeah. it's not that we just didn't come up with a place we didn't come up with anywhere near a place and so much of the background work and you know ground you know that i would have wished the committee could have done it, it was the most disappointing aspects of it so i'm you know i actually think edgewood is a great campus you know, to be a sort of interim for an experiment with how to get kids out of cells and into a, a much different kind of environment while we, you know, and I know our chief has ideas about what what we could ultimately build. So I just, you know, as a member of the commission, I, I would like to see us move to this sort of interim thing. But um, yeah. So that was a disappointing aspect of it, but maybe, um, Patty, you can help us as we figure out sort of what the probation department can do, you know, while all this is going on and gets, you know, start moving forward with a lot of this stuff. So I, I actually felt I, I really was hoping that we could uh, develop um, an alternative and exercise the right through Board of State to have a pilot program. Yeah. And, you know, whether it be Edgewood or 1055 or we build a, you know, through a warehouse, uh, that's not really off the table either, you know, cause that actually could uh, result in advocating for legislative changes, you know, with our legislators to allow San Francisco to develop a pilot site in the interim, you know, while whatever they agree on as a permanent site for home or homes. Um, so uh, my hope is that I have not given up hope and I'm actually excited. I, I really want to move forward. And unfortunately, you know, with COVID and we're still in COVID, things slowed us down tremendously. But I have to say that going through that almost two year process that could be pretty adversarial, as you know, um and painful but it was necessary and, and it's a great report yeah and it's a great report. A, a very good framework and so. i actually feel that it has helped jump start many of the initiatives already that partners are already working on and i agree that um it already exists with credible messengers you know we could call it whatever but if you were to identify right now credible messengers well-being advocates they're there they've been there forever jack jacqua for instance you know he is the well-being advocate um but uh so uh, it exists it, it's not um a totally uphill impossible um goal that we're working collectively towards i think that there is a will i do believe that um, um uh, president shaman walton is um, very intentional about this so you know with uh, i i agree that it's important to have um a hundred percent um uh, support uh, uh from the probation commission because you all will be helping direct the programs, whether it's in the facility, creating the facility, or being out in the community. So I don't know if people on the commission feel secure enough about this, or maybe at, a, at the next meeting, to basically endorse the 
framework and general principles and overall uh, direction of this report and go to the um, Board of Supervisors, um, whatever it is, um, and say that. I, I know I plan to go as an individual. Um, so uh, I, I think it would be good if the commission um, did that. Uh, not necessary, but but a good thing. So. Well, we're not taking any action this evening, correct? This is discussion. So. Yeah, so maybe we put it on the agenda for action at the next meeting. Right. And meanwhile, people can read the report. Um, and then we can discuss if there are aspects of it that we want to take issue with or would keep us from supporting the general principles and framework and moving forward with this because i think that liberates our chief a little bit you know to say okay here are parts of it that i think we could really get off the ground which i think you're doing anyway but um I, yeah, I, no, thank you, Commissioner. I, I am. I would say that if the commission is going to consider whether to endorse parts or all of it, I would ask for a um, deeper opportunity to provide some critical feedback. And I, my only uh, concern about doing that in February is that you will also be approving the budget and have some other pretty big items on your agenda. So I'll leave it to the commission to work that out. But I, I just want to note that I think, you know, the devil really is in the details. There's parts of it that we can do in a million ways, and there's parts of it that I think we really can't do in the current way it's designed. And I would really want to walk you through um, my analysis of it as you make your decision. I have read the report. I've read it um, three times now. <laughs> I read through it three times now, and I will read it again. But I do think that what uh, the chief is proposing would be of great benefit um, because they, uh, there are some questions, concerns in, in, um, in parts or elements of the report. I think that overall it's, you know, definitely a, a, a good, good report. Um, very appreciative of all the work that went into it from the community and stakeholders and leadership that Patty and and um, others have provided to get us to this point uh, and the obstacles. Certainly, uh, we certainly didn't expect that we would be in um, a pandemic, um, a global pandemic that has slowed um, um, many things down. So I think that it's um, just really great that we're, we, we are where we are, but I would like to hear from the chief what her analysis is. And I would imagine that at the retreat that our focus is um, moving more towards um, how do we then craft a plan for implementation um, or execution um, and that's what I would um, expect or, or hope that we would really discuss um, in the retreat. Or how to even, you know, who, who, yeah, the, the execution. Awesome. Great. Can other questions or comments about this item from commissioners?
Not seeing any hands raised. Well, to be continued, um, I just want to note that we will be meeting February 9th, which is, I believe, Chief, two days before the Board of Supervisors hearing. So um, we will have some more time to discuss this um, and further hash out um, how the commission can play a role in the implementation of ultimately whatever the Board of Supervisors approves. Um, but um, it would be good for any members of the commission that want to um, express their uh, views on the report uh, after reading it to go to the um, hearing and to obviously um, join Commissioner Brodkin in expressing those concerns. One thing uh, we could do is, you, you know, of course, we. I mean, everybody likes some parts and not others and, you know, uh, but I think asserting that we're here at the at the hearing and that by the way, hello, you have a juvenile probation commission that needs to have a role and we're really ready to step up to the plate. I mean, I, you know, I'm not saying we have to say rubber stamp everything in the report. I, and I'm perfectly, you know, happy to hear our chief <laughs> say what aspects are the most exciting and about which there is the most potential and about which what we could do most quickly. Um, and you know, maybe we won't be able to do that in February, but at least we can, you know, agree to go as a commission and say, we're here, you know, and we're prepared. We're going to be studying it. We're going to be talking about what aspects of it we think um, can move most quickly. Um, so maybe, maybe that would be a good thing. Because we're a kind of invisible commission. I mean, I don't think the, the, Commission was mentioned, you know, more than a handful of times during this whole two-year process. So, well, I think that'd be a good thing to do. I, I think it would be a great thing to do. And in fact, I think it is it is it is incumbent upon um, the commission to do so. Um, I'm interested in what we are what are what is a mandate of this commission, not just relative to the implementation to the approval or an implementation of what is um, presented in this plan of the closure of, of, of the juvenile hall, but um, I think that our we have to be very clear on uh, and and ourselves defining within our jurisdiction um, our official role mandate and charge relative to a plan such as this, um, because whether it is this particular sitting commission or you know. Uh, commission five years from now or a few years from now, this is the time for us to really be clear on what our responsibility is, our role, our oversight um, and implementation, and therefore, um, you know, the oversight of, of, of this plan, certainly through the chief and the department, but the clarity, I think, is our lack of clarity um, is why we are only mentioned a handful of times. I think that the, the commission cannot be perceived as an advisory or a, a, some committee or, or some task force. What is the role of this commission relative to any particular plan when it comes to, um, the, um, the, uh, the workings of 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 um, 
of the department, but most specifically uh, as it relates to the, the closure or the movement towards closure of the hall and the creation of new program um, and um, supports um, as, as described. So to me, it's not, it cannot be a, a passive or voluntary or, um, you know, an afterthought. I, I think that we have an opportunity and in fact, it's incumbent upon us to be very, um, as clear as we possibly can, um, yeah, about what the role of the commission is, um, relative to. This plan. So what I what I would be prepared to do at the next meeting, since it's before the February thing, is mm -hmm. to make a motion. And I'm I'm not saying it has to be a complicated motion, but mm -hmm. make a motion to have the commission officially represented through whatever commissioners want to, uh, you know, go and uh, our president or uh, our our officers and and say we're here. We have an important role to play in this. We are going to be working very hard studying this, figuring out what aspects of it the probation department can move forward with first. Um, and we are and we are prepared to come back um, with Archie <laughs> and report on that. I I I feel like that would be a great first step, and there's enough time to make that motion next next. Mm -hmm at the next meeting and mm -hmm. you know start by asserting that so can we put that on the agenda for the next meeting i'm not we have a big agenda i'm not saying we have to have a long discussion of it it seemed like mm -hmm. there's a sort of consensus already that that would be a that would be a good idea and it would essentially be an item to uh, to outline uh the the framework that the commission supports of out of the closure juvenile hall work group. No, I don't think we're ready to do that at all. I think that that it, it would be enough to go and say, uh, as a commission, we are prepared to work, you know, to oversee the the role of our department in this, and we're going to be working with our chief to identify the priority aspects of this and you know move forward as quickly as possible and you know we want you to know that that that's our, that what that's what we see as a role in this so it doesn't say well we like this part or we like that part i don't think we're anywhere near prepared to do that but i think we are prepared to say we're here we need to have a role in this we're going to be you know, overseeing the department as it moves forward. And we're excited about, you know, the vision. <laughs> I mean, who isn't excited about the vision? So more like a resolution expressing the commission's role in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. In a very general way, too. And Chief, um, one more question to not to make a, another layer of complexity. Does the, I assume the Juvenile Justice Commission also has a, a pretty prominent role in this process as well. So that's, that's a great question. So, you know, the, so we're the only county that has a juvenile probation commission. Every county has a juvenile justice commission, which is actually the body created by the state that is responsible for 
inspecting and improving our juvenile hall on an ongoing basis. So that commission also meets monthly um, and that is their role. And so I, I think it's worth uh, looking at kind of the language and mandates of the two commissions going forward, right? To be clear on the relative uh, authority and actual requirements that they have. Mm-hmm. Would be novel. Oh. <laughs> um, I think we're all in agreement then um, for February that we can uh, have an agenda item that centers around um, the commission's role in the process. Um, and again, just reinforcing to the commission members to uh, keep that February 11th date circled um, to make sure that we are, um, if you are available to have a, a role at the Board of Supervisors uh, meeting. And I guess another question, Chief, is uh, so that's the committee meeting where the, then it goes to the full board after that for adoption, I would assume. Is that how it works as we we know, or is it, does it sit in committee and um, have to have to be discussed further? I mean, is it, I assume it's a little different than regular legislation, like a regular ordinance. Because it's not legislation. I mean, the, the ordinance already passed. This is the report. So my understanding is that they'll go through a couple cycles public comment on everything and then some kind of interaction with the, the with labor and then a second hearing on the specific uh recommendations or proposals that the board does want to move forward with so I, I that's the last i've heard i have a meeting coming up um the week after next i want to say with the supervisors who whose legislation this is um they've asked me to sit down with them to talk about it so i'll understand it a little better after that and i can update you at the february meeting yeah i'm just thinking through like the you know uh, the best venue for the um for our commission to express their i mean if it's in committee if it's at the full board if it's both um just making sure that you know um we're either uh, showing the commission flag at all of the meetings that um, we should, or if there's one specific one that's um, you know more appropriate, just wanting to figure that out. So when you do speak to the supervisors and understand that um, kind of logistical process, it'd be helpful to perhaps send an email to Pauline and the rest of the commissioners so that we are all aware of it and you know can make sure to circle the date and time on our calendar um, and make ourselves aware of that. Okay. Thank you. Are there any other uh, questions or comments about item number four um, about the closed juvenile hall work group summary that was presented tonight. There are none. Are none. Oh, no. uh, can you guys hear me? Oh, Commissioner oh, Spingola. Commissioner Spingola. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, but I'm in it. I didn't want to get on because I'm in and out. And um, can Patty Lee, is Patty Lee still on? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Okay, yeah, that's why I'm not going to speak because I don't want to be in and out. So I just pass it on. I'll talk to you at another time. I don't want to be in and out. That's okay. Because I'm moving. I'm, I'm moving. Yeah, yeah, yes, ma'am. I'll reach out. I'm a, I'm a guard. Are there any uh, other questions or comments before we open up for public comment? 
All right. At this time, I'll ask our uh, moderator to open up public comment again uh, for members of the public to press star three to have your hand raised and be added to the public comment uh, line. And I'll ask also our secretary if we have any emails or voicemails at this time about this item. Oh, we do have one person with their hand raised. Uh, should I go ahead and unmute them? Sure. Thank you. Um, the user, uh, the phone number starts 415672. You're going to be unmuted right now. Get three minutes. Caller. Heavenly uh, Father, thank you for this meal, for all our blessings. Thank you for bringing us home. Caller, are you there for public comment about this item? I am. Can you hear me? Yes. Good evening, commissioners. Um, good evening, chiefs, cheerly, everyone. Um, my name is Dean Tienti, and I'm the deputy director at the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. I'm also the co-chair of the Juvenile Justice Providers Association and have been an active participant of the closed juvenile hall work group process. Um, I wanted to join the conversation to say that despite the outstanding balance the city owes on the current juvenile hall, and the costs that it will take to develop a new home-like space for detention. We know from every detention facility, all of the research, countless firsthand experiences of youth that have shared their stories, that detention does not rehabilitate, but it is trauma-inducing. Um, on behalf of the Juvenile Justice Providers Association, it is our ethical responsibility to change the current manner in which detention is done here in San Francisco for our youth. I believe it is our responsibility to the youth in the hall today for their families and for all the generations of youth and their families to come that we change the future of detention. I don't believe it can come from some paint on the wall or something similar. We owe our youth so much better and I truly hope that the commissioners can support this change for what's best for our community and our youth. Thank you very much. Thank you. Are there other members of the public that would like to speak on item four at this time? Um, Moderator, do, do we have any more hands raised at this time? Uh, no more hands raised. Thank you. And um, just double checking, uh, Ms. Silveray, do we have any emails or voicemails? No emails. Thank you. We'll go ahead and close item four. Thank you again to Miss um, Patty Lee for her presentation tonight and also to the chief for her um, remarks and um, uh, other uh, information she provided so we can further understand the commission's role and also just the process in general. Um, again, to be continued and uh, we will be having much more further discussion about this uh, topic. Thank you very much for inviting us and for your very, very thoughtful comments. Thank you and good night. Good night. Thank you for joining us.
Uh, we'll now take item number five. Um, this is a uh, probably a brief one, but just want to open it up. Um, Juvenile Probation Commission uh, agenda time estimates for each item. I believe this is a um, agenda item that Commissioner Shorter uh, would, wanted to hear tonight. And so I'd love to hand it over to you, Commissioner, if you are uh, willing and able to perhaps um, elaborate a little bit further on this item. Thank you, President. Uh, yes, um, we have many um, great things certainly um, under discussion and will uh, for this particular commission. Um, clearly, the discussion that we just had was was um, robust and informative and um, and engaging and certainly um, one that I, I think is is um, will will continue. Um, I do think that it would be helpful um, for this commission to um, look at other examples in terms of of uh, time allotments um, for various for the items on on agenda. Um, my experience so far on the commission is that while we have had uh, a number of of, of of robust and healthy um, discussions. They can at times be um, lengthy to the extent that the public is is no longer able to engage when we're going from five thirty and you know possibly past nine um, you know p.m. Um, my suggestion is is that uh, from my experience, and I think that this is certainly used in other commissions beyond the the commission that I've. I've come from to, to join this commission. Um, it is not unusual to have uh, sort of a, a prescriptive uh, or descriptive time period for each item. You know, what the expectation is is ten minutes or fifteen minutes or twenty minutes for discussion. It's not in stone, um, but it helps to um, facilitate. The meeting meeting towards a, a timely uh, start and certainly a, a reasonable uh, end time. This allows the one um, the facilitation of of the meeting um, to move um, forward in a more timely way, but also um, gives the public an idea of when items are likely to open on the agenda. Um, and so that they can be um, participant or observe um, in a in a within a you know within a reasonable period of time for the meetings. So I have supplied the um, commission executive um, assistant um, with an example of another commission. And again, you know, I'm I admit my. My, my, my bias um, from, for instance, the Commission on the Status of Women um, for several years. And in fact, this is instituted during my time as presiding over the, the commission, um, sort of, you know, just some descriptions of, of, um, of a time allotment for, for items. I think it's reasonable. Again, I think that it's very helpful for the public um, to have an idea of of, of when items are likely to open so that they can participate um, it, knowing that 
you know, probably within a half hour or so, they'll move to um, the item that I'm I'm interested in addressing or participating in. So that's the short of it. Um, certainly, uh, understanding that um, you know we do have to allow for uh, public comment for as long as as that takes. Um, but you know, uh, and then certainly some discussions will maybe extended beyond the period of prescribed time, but it also, um, I think can assist, uh, commissioners as well and department, um, staff in, um, in terms of how much, you know, time we're likely to spend on a particular topic or item. Thank you, commissioner. Um, I. Go ahead, Commissioner Moses. Uh, do you have a yes, comment? Yes, I sincerely agree with Commissioner Shorter, and I've been looking forward to when this item will be brought forward. And I think it's a very good idea. You know, we come out with a specific agenda, put a time-wise on it, so we don't have to be be at the meeting past ten o'clock or nine o'clock. You know, I've been on several commission, and I've never come across, you know something we are doing here. So I think it would be a good idea. I'm glad that Commissioner Sara brought it up. I'm in support of that. Great. Um, the only question I have uh, is perhaps to our Deputy City Attorney. And I, the way I would believe this could be structured, um, and this is perhaps a question for Ms. Clark, is where we put a time limit on the uh, amount of time that the speakers and uh, or the presenters and the commissioners speak, but not necessarily limit public comment. Is that the appropriate way to do this, Ms. Clark? Um, I understood it was going to, they were going to be estimates. Um, I think that's fine. And as long as you don't have a time limit for public comment, you should be okay. I would just, the only thing that I would caution is if you have a specific time, like I saw some of the examples from the agenda for the Commission on the Status of Women. So if it says, for example, it's 617, something's going to be heard, and you're pretty sure you're going to be way off that, probably be a good idea to announce that. Um, and I also would caution against starting an item before the time estimate. I mean, if it's identified as an estimate, you, know, you would probably be okay, but mm -hmm. just to be both courteous and also just to make sure that you know people who want to hear things get to hear things, um, Mm -hmm. If you're going to be way off the estimates that you you know announce that as the meeting is going on, I think that would be a good idea. And not to take things like mm -hmm. at seven fifteen, um, and then it looks like you're finishing something earlier, so it's going to be six fifteen. You know, I think that that could be an. I think mm -hmm. people might wait, right? So anyway, I'm probably repeating myself now because I'm tired. But the uh, <laughs> that's the bottom line. I think you're okay with time estimates. Maybe I would have something like an asterisk at the bottom. That says yeah. you know, estimates. Um, you know, we'll endeavor to stay within this time frame, but we can't anticipate all public comment and/or how long the discussions will take place. So, just so people are on alert that things could start early or slightly earlier or slightly later. Correct. Yes, and that is exactly how that's been my experience, and that has been um, not only my experience as um, a member of the body, but as a presider uh of the body certainly it is it, it, they're just estimates they're not you know cutting people off at 6 17 and saying that's it we gotta go um but it gives us some uh, a better uh, it, it enables some some time management um 
but also um, so that the public has some idea of, of, you know, when we're likely to get to various items. Great, great. Very helpful uh, idea. I would be in support of that as well. Um, the only other question I had again from Ms. Clark is potentially, is this something where the commission leadership would set this? Uh, um, so I'll, uh, I'll be stepping down after the next meeting um, uh, from the leadership. So I just wanna make sure that the future uh, officers of the commission would understand that they have the uh, duty to uh, put the time estimates on each item or is it the commission secretary that would do it or how is that structure managed appropriately? I think it would, I mean, the way I would envision it is that the way it normally works is the president working with the secretary and in consultation with other members and based mm -hmm. on what you guys agree on in the meetings creates the agenda. And so then I think in creating the agenda, you would make your best estimate of the time frame. I don't think, um, yeah, I, I mean, and, and if it doesn't work in the next meeting, then you could stop doing it. Um, if you're going to have a, if you're going to adopt a rule that it always has to be that way, then it needs to be an action item and it has to be noticed mm -hmm. 15 days, probably. I mean, that's probably the safest course, but just to start including that on the agenda, whoever is developing the agenda, I think that would be fine. Great, thank you. Are there any other thoughts from commissioners about this item and this uh, proposal to just tweak our agendas with uh, uh, the addition of a um, estimated time um, for each item? I think this is a great idea. Great. So it sounds like we have uh, a agreement to move forward with this. So um, all uh, for the next uh, meeting, I will work with our commission secretary and uh, the speakers as well as other commissioners um, who perhaps have agenda items to um, develop time estimates and we'll try it out and hopefully um, we are successful in uh, moving more uh, speedily through uh, our meetings. So I thank you, Commissioner Shorter, for the proposal. Um, it's a great idea. Uh, is there any, uh, I'll just uh, note for the public uh, to press star three to uh, raise your hand at this time. Is there any public comment on item number five? Uh, yes, we have a comment from Jessica Nolan. And unmute you now, you have three minutes. Hey, everyone. Um, my name is Jessica Nolan. I'm executive director at Young Women's Freedom Center. And I was really excited to hear this agenda item um, because this commission is um, dealing with issues related to um, young people involved in the juvenile justice system. We're an organization that works to build the leadership, civic engagement, and advocacy skills of directly impacted young people. And so many times in the past year, especially during this process of the, um, uh, you know, working on the plans to shut down um, juvenile hall, uh, young people were unable to um, participate in this meeting because it just runs so late. Um, and we really had a hard time preparing them and they'd be excited and we just, people fizzle out. Um, so we're strongly in support of this. And um, especially because if we're centering the well-being um, of young people, making sure at the that they're at the center is making sure it's accessible. So I just wanted to put those comments and, and thank you, um, Andrea, for those recommendations. 
Thank you. Are there other members of the public at this time who would like to speak on item number five? Uh, no other members of the public. Thank you. And uh, Ms. Silveray, do we have any emails or voicemails about this item? No, we do not. Thank you. Well, we will close item five and go ahead and take item six. Um, this is uh, the Juvenile Probation Commission's role as it relates to department contracts. Um, I believe this was the result of our last meeting. Um, and I would uh, propose, Commissioner Brodkin, would you be able to um, lead the discussion on this item? Yeah, I, I I think we ought to start. I think we all agreed at the last meeting that, that we should um, uh, approve, <laughs> if, if at all feasible, um, any significant contract, particularly contracts that um, deal with the uh, the so um, I I guess the I don't know I want to say the substance of the work, but it's all substance of the work as opposed to fixing the heater. So I don't know exactly how to phrase that, but my uh, you know and my experience with this is with the school board, which has a consent calendar, and then people can pull things off the consent calendar, and most of the time they don't. So I mean, what occurred to me is that anything over a hundred thousand dollars should be on a consent calendar, and anything over two hundred thousand dollars should be put on the agenda. It's a sort of arbitrary way to think about this. I don't think it's going to be onerous. I think if there's a consent calendar about fixing the the heater or painting the walls, that we will have the common sense to. Uh, but you know that can be useful. Uh, sometimes, you know, the pricing of things is actually controversial, and you know, maybe it will be a useful um, oversight function. Uh, I just don't want to be caught in a situation we were in before, and so that was my arbitrary thinking about it: that we'd get a consent calendar with everything over a hundred grand, and we'd have anything over two hundred grand actually put on the agenda. Well, you know, I, I'm certainly open about this. I mean, we could get a consent calendar on everything and then pull it off as as we desire. So I, I'd be interested in other people's opinions about this. Well, if we did a consent on everything, then we'd have much shorter meetings. Uh, <laughs> just consent to everything. No, another aspect of this, um, Commissioner Brockens, and um, to our city attorney, is um, I, I appreciate the 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 kind of um, formula that the commissioner is 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 proposing, but another aspect of this is while I do certainly understand and, and not to relitigate or go over the discussion we had last month, a relative to the contract uh, that um, um, sort of compelled um, this greater discussion is this another reason for that is liability. Um, for the commissioners, I think it's important to know what contracts um, are being um, um, it, it be proposed to enter into. For one, um, we as commissioners, we want to make sure that, and I'm not sure how this process is, is done 
through the, this commission and maybe the city attorney can expand on this. But if there's a conflict of interest, for instance, if we take uh, if the department takes on a contract for, let's say, $100,000 and we're not aware of it, it is possible that um, it may be a remote possibility, but there's enough of a possibility. What if we to find out that one of our commissioners is is affiliated or associated or working with or are contracted with that entity um, that we have now engaged in? We need to know. We need to know that that there aren't any potential um, um, conflicts of interest or uh, appearances of conflicts of interest um that you know could could happen even you know certainly erroneously so it's not just a question of the commission knowing and having oversight over the process it's also i think there's i'm concerned too that um we don't run into those kind of ethical um issues does that make sense yeah, no, I do understand the question. Um, and it's something that I want to give a little bit of thought to. Um, but in general, if you don't play a role in weighing in on a contract, I don't think that uh, I don't think there would be an issue with the conflicts. But because because you're you're not influencing the decision. I mean, if you if you have a financial stake in an entity and you have influence over the governmental decision, that's that's when those that's when there's a problem. Um, but because you don't you historically have not played any role in deciding what contracts to award or not award, I don't think that would be an issue. But I it's something I do want to talk to the um, to our ethics team about because this is just not my area of expertise. Um, but the, that's the general principle, though, is that if, if you have a financial stake or any kind of or you're or someone close to you has a financial stake in a contract um, that the department is entering into and 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 you have a role, or you you could influence in some way that decision. That's that's when it's an issue. But like I said, I'll, I'll have to I want to talk more with our ethics team before. And I'm happy to, and I can email the group once I do so that, you know, with the legal advice, um, I would rather, I would rather proceed that way rather than speaking on something that I haven't thought about. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, and uh, that, that's actually my, my, my primary concern. Again, I know it's remote. I know, as you've described, um, we're not ourselves necessarily um, facilitating or influencing but i think that just for public record um um no surprises <laughs> is what i'm about especially when it comes to the the um yeah so. no i i i, I can too i can can i can chime in on that too because um commissioner shorter you're right it, we we do need it definitely and um yeah and um um City attorney, uh, yeah, you definitely need to talk to the ethic committee because you know I know that you know I play many roles in many things, right? Um, but nothing that comes around in where I get funded from here. But I know in another instance too that doing the work that you know that juvenile and the um, the chief does is like I wouldn't want to see every time a hundred thousand dollar contract came up that she had to get approved. From us because that's not you know it's not feasible to run a space or a business because a hundred thousand dollars is not you know 
it doesn't, you know, it, it's, you know, it pops up. So, but anything going over, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, I think it should be brought before the commission, but you know, um, yeah. So I think that it should be an amount set where we say, Hey, anything after two, $300,000, you know, it definitely need to be brought before the commission, but you know, um, to run, to run a business, you know, and some contracts come, you know, you, you never know. It could be somebody sitting there with the chief and saying, Hey, I just see this contract right here. It's a hundred thousand dollars. Should we get it? And she like, Oh yeah, let's try it. You know? And you know, I don't think it has to come cause it might, you might have three, you know, you, everybody here knows that you might have, you know, till the uh, 15th for this month to get it in. So, you know, and you never know how them contracts work. So I don't think a hundred thousand dollars, but it should be a, an amount set where it's saying, Hey, that should go before the commission because, you know, well, maybe, I like maybe um, we distinguish between things related to the facility because that's a, a almost a different kind of thing. Um, I think a hundred thousand dollars, if you're going to have a, consultant who's going to facilitate meetings is a lot of money with a hundred thousand dollars to fix the heater is nothing so i feel like maybe we should distinguish between uh contracts related to um fixing the facility and have a cutoff point for that which i i don't really know what would be appropriate for contracts with um pe people who are providing uh direct services to kids or consultation to staff i think that's a, a different thing and to me that's that the, the, you know a hundred thousand dollars means a totally different thing in that context than it is to running a facility so i would be up for distinct separating those two things yeah i think it's a conversation definitely i think it's a conversation that, like you said it is kind of you know distinguishing what what is what when it comes to that you know um I think, yeah, I think we go into, in, in the retreat, we go into what it looks like, you know, and what makes, you know, what makes sense. I don't think we should make this too complicated because we could start doing something. And if it looks crazy, we'll, we'll stop doing it. I mean, I, I, I'm interested in contracts related to services to kids and consultation with staff, you know, related to that kind of work. I, I, I have no interest in looking at you know the garbage collection or you know all the things related to running a facility i don't know if we have a you know so i i i'd be happy if we limited it you know if we eliminated the facility contracts and and limited it to um you know programmatic uh pro programmatic right. we have a great chief now and not to personal this is not, it has nothing to do with this particular chief it's just sort of institutionally what do we what do we do i mean if we have a some commission down the road that isn't us all good really really great people and has a chief that has a family that's involved in a you know <laughs> construction work and somehow they're getting all the hundred thousand dollar con you know the, so we definitely can and i know that the chief has her hand up i'm sorry i just wanted to iterate no, I appreciate it. I just wanted to offer the context for your conversation that we have nine contracts, period. Mm -hmm. And that includes operations and it includes consulting and it includes a couple CBOs. So I just, uh, in the interest of time for all of you, I don't want you to feel like you're wading into something that's going to actually even be on the agenda a lot. 
Oh. Um, and, and none of them are under $100,000. So I just wanted to give you that context. Three of them cover food and copiers and everything else is to Margaret's, to Commissioner Brocken's point, operational, like programmatic in or consulting in nature. So it's mm -hmm. nine contracts that we have right now. Um, we do not see ourselves, you know, in the business of really expanding our direct funding to community organizations. We see that continuing to happen through Department of Children, Youth and Families the way it does now. So I don't see this as a large part of, um, of your time going forward. Should you want to have them all come across your desk? Thanks. That's very helpful, Chief, um, and helpful context to understand how many contracts um, the department um, has. And is that annually nine contracts that come up, or is it? I'm sure some of them are multi-year contracts. Um, some of them are multi-year. I think they all generally go start out as multi-year, right? Um, and so. They're not even things you would be looking at annually. Got it. So, I mean, uh, in terms of, I mean, I don't know the process for a consent calendar. I would defer to the to deputy city attorney Clark on that. If, um, but I mean, it seems to me like it wouldn't be hard the way that we do with the minutes to put contracts uh, either at the beginning or at the end of the meeting, um, and just go ahead and vote them, you know, fairly quickly unless there's. Uh, you know, discussion that needs to be had about the contracts. But again, I, I'm not aware of how the consent calendar would work, but would be open to uh, establishing a process if um, the our city attorney could advise us on the appropriate way to notice and vote on those. Sure. Um, although I do know that this is a discussion item only. So if you're going to adopt this, if, if you want to adopt this process, I think you'd probably be better to move it to a vote next at the next meeting rather than um, adopting it. I mean, it's the agenda item time estimate thing was like sort of a how to manage the meeting and that doesn't trigger the same kind of requirements for notice, I don't think so. Um, but yeah, I can I can send an email explaining how, but that's basically it though, um, how it works. Um, is that you could do, you can kind of do them in a, in a bulk. And then I, I, my understanding is that someone on the commission could ask to be moved off the consent calendar and then there could be a longer discussion um, or you could just vote on them in bulk. I think that's how it works. But like I said, I can send an email to explain how it works. And I could try to do that before the next meeting so that before you guys vote on whether or not to adopt this is the way you're gonna move forward, you'll have some sense of how it operates. That'd be great. Very helpful. And then we can go ahead and adopt uh, something, a framework at the next meeting. Yeah, I have a question. Sure, Commissioner. Well, thank you, Chief, for explaining that. Since we only have nine contracts, you know, we approved the budget. I'm sure some of these contracts are probably on the annual, annual budget that we present. Is that correct, Chief? Say that again. Would okay. you say that again, Commissioner? Okay. You, we approved. We, we approved the budget, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, the nine contracts you're talking about, nine of them, are they already in the, in, in, in the budget? The current nine are all in the budget, so you wouldn't be approving those. I, I'm only offering it just to give you a sense of the, really just the small scale, right, of contracts we're talking about. So when they had to be reapproved in a couple of years or whenever their term was up, Commissioner, that's when they would come to you for approval outside of the budget cycle for us to enter into the contract. 
my concern is just about the time-wise, since we only meet once a, once a month. You know, if we have to, if we meet each other two, two times a, a, a month, that might be quite easy. But in meeting once a month, you know, I don't know whether that could have a big impact on, on the chief, you know. But we can work closely with, with him, with her, you know, and see. Just time-wise. You know, it always takes us like a couple, we always know when we're going to be working on a contract by and large, perhaps there could be an urgency provision that you could give us as part of the process. Um, so I, I, I'm interested to see what the city attorney brings back to you all as a potential process based on how other commissions uh, do this function. Very helpful. Uh... Great, I, a great point made, uh, Commissioner, though, about making sure that um, we have a process also to perhaps expedite the process um, if we need to. Appreciate that. Are there any other questions or comments about this item before we head to public comment? All right, well, at this time, we'll open up public comment against star three for raising hands uh, and I will hand it over to our moderator to see if we have any public comment about item six related to department contracts. Uh, looks like no public comment on that. Thank you. Uh, and Ms. Silveray, do we have any emails or voicemails at this time about this item? Not at this time. Thank you. Uh, so we'll take up a uh, formal proposal at the next meeting and this item is closed. Uh, so now we'll take item seven, the chief's report. I will go ahead and hand it over to you, chief. Thank you. And I will go ahead and hand it right over to Selena, who will do a quick um, recap of the most critical parts of our monthly data report and then go right into our deep dive with the Young Women's Freedom Center since they have awesomely and patiently waited uh, to be here for this part of the agenda. So I will hand it over to Selena now. Thank you, Selena. Thank you, Chief Miller. Can someone pass me screen sharing abilities? Thank you. Um, Okay, can everyone see my screen just to be sure? Yes. Okay, great. Um, so, hi everyone. I am Selena Cuevas. As Chief Miller mentioned, I am going to, in the interest of time, only present the juvenile hall snapshot, but happy to take questions on any other slides that I'm not going over tonight. Um, so slide three, juvenile hall snapshot on Monday, January 10th, to, uh, 2022, there were 16 young people in juvenile hall, 88% boys, 75% um, Black youth, 13% Latinx youth, 6% AAPI youth, and 6% other youth, um, other race ethnicity youth. Uh, 
juvenile hall population by age, we're continuing to see a large percentage of young people age 18 or older. Um, on Monday, 57% of young people in juvenile hall were 18 or 19 year olds. Um, a new graph has been added to this slide on juvenile hall population by county of residence, so where young people reside. 87% of young people in juvenile hall on Monday were from San Francisco, 13% were from out of county. And then focusing on this last graph, juvenile hall population by status, um, half of young people in juvenile hall were non out of home placement youth, 6% were pending adjudication, 13% were pending disposition, 6% were pending placement, 19% um, were committed to juvenile hall, and 6%, one young person, um, has been committed to the secure youth treatment facility. So, as a result of SB 823 DJJ realignment, it's our first um, secure track commitment in juvenile hall. I am going to zoom us to the second to last slide. On deep dives, as Chief Miller mentioned, today's um, deep dive is on girls, um, and we are presenting alongside um, Young Women's Freedom Center. Uh, they've graciously agreed to also present their um, qualitative, um, more narrative report to supplement the statistics uh, that we will go over. Um, so that's why this presentation is so short, is to allow uh, more time for that. As for future topics for deep dives in February, going over the budget, and then in March, planning to invite the California Policy Lab to present Make It Right findings. I am happy to take any questions either on the one slide I, pre I presented or any of the other slides that I didn't go over, if anyone has any. Are there any questions for Selena about the monthly data report? she has presented i did have um one question i don't think it was about the one slide you presented um maybe it was i don't know um i was looking through and i was having a little bit of a hard time digesting the data without your normal walkthrough of it <laughs> um so i was wondering it seemed to me like there was a 12 year old that popped up in the new data which is obviously concerning because that is such a young age um i i obviously their case is going to be very confidential but it just it's concerning and i'm wondering if there was anything um i i don't know i'm just wondering if there's a way to bring it up to discuss it without violating any confidentiality uh, i maybe saw somewhere that the case was related to a firearm oh no i'm sorry um but i it, it's just concerning that a 12 year old popped up and it looks like there hasn't been such a young person for quite some time yeah it's a good question commissioner there's actually been a few 12 year olds in the last few months um i think the way i would answer your question is to say that we haven't booked anybody that young um who wasn't here on a firearm case. <laughs> who was or was not? The only 12 year olds who have been booked in have been booked in on firearms cases without speaking to any one individual. 
I, I know this is going to be hard to answer, but I, I wonder if there's any sort of additional support that that those youths of such a young age could be receiving or are receiving, ensuring that they're getting into additional programs that, you know, I, you guys know me, I'm always a proponent of additional counseling and therapy and, and things like that. Yes, absolutely. And so without getting into the specifics, I can say in all of those cases, there are, there have been, um, there's been a lot of attention to different kinds of support um, for the young person and their families. Obviously, this is of extreme um, concern for the department too. And so there are cases, as with all of our cases, we take seriously, but this obviously um, is a serious issue for us. It's actually uh, something that's led us to have some additional conversations with other partners about additional kinds of support for those youngest young people who come into contact with us on uh, serious matters. So hopefully things that we can report back in the future, but some um, beginning conversations because uh, be because of um, a few of these cases lately. Um, I was also having a hard time digesting if it seemed like the average length of stay was increasing. I know we've talked about the outliers, um, but it seemed like the the median number. I. I don't know if you guys could talk a little bit about that, if there's a, a reason why, if there's something that could be done about it, if it's, you know, it seems like a pretty steady trend. Sure. So I, I'm, that's, this was the other slide we were debating whether to skip or show you tonight. So commissioner, you, you hit the highlights. Um, yeah, well done. This is not rehearsed everybody. Um, <laughs> and I would just note that you are right. So the average length of stay has been increasing. It's not outliers. Um, I think when we have hit the point where we have four young people here on homicide cases, that no longer is an outlier. So we have, you know, four homicide cases going through for young people in the hall, including the young person who is just committed to the hall as a secure commitment. Um, we'll have to figure out how to start capturing that separately in the data. That's a long commitment that's been ordered by the court. Um, and then we have a handful of gun charges as well. And all of those cases are taking time. And uh, that's you are seeing that reflected in the average length of stay. And I would just say as a general theme, I think that as we're moving in the direction that I think we collectively want us to, which is really only using detention for the most serious situations, I'm not surprised to see a longer average length of stay as we move away from detaining at all, or except for very briefly young people who really don't need to be here, we will wind up with um, a concentration of young people with more serious and probably prolonged situations. That that does make a lot of sense. Um, this may be beyond the bounds, but I wonder if there are any additional programs if it seems like we are getting more cases of homicide, more cases with guns, is there, are there, other programs, services, uh, community-based things that we could be doing to really tamp down on this upward trend. Absolutely, and I'll I'll touch on it a little bit in my report out about the DJJ realignment work we're doing because it does tie into what what you're asking. Okay, thank you. Hey, can I can I add to the commissioner? Um, um, uh, Chief, uh, Commissioner Chu. Um, it is, it is, it has been, and it's been kind of, you know, um, especially for, and, and, and um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to listening to what the Young Women's Freedom Center is saying, 
but it is this new Instagram kind of gangster stuff going on with babies. And, you know, it's just, it's just, I mean, it gets to a point where that, you know, um, our young people start following these trends that go on. And it's like, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it's comp, you know, it, it is, and it's complicated. And this is where CBOs come in. And, you know, the reason why, you know, we, we, we try to stop it from even getting into the commit to the chief's hands or anything is the CBOs doing the work that's in the communities, which is so effective to to so many, you know, so many community communities and, you know, the CBO is such a role because you see it coming. And when you see it coming, it become you know, you, you have to kind of intervene because, you know, you have these young people who the schools are putting them out right now because of COVID. They, you know, they leave in schools, but they don't, you know, once one kid come up positive, the whole class has to leave. And then they just out, just kind of running around and, you know, finding mischief to get into. And, you know, this is a conversation I'm always open to have with you. Um, Commissioner Chu, you can always reach out to me and let's talk about like what, you know, what it looks like in communities, especially in, you know, some are, you know, struggling communities that's, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot with this and you hit it on the nose because it's a lot of trauma in these, within these young people right now, it's a lot of trauma going on and we, it has to be addressed, you know, and if we don't start addressing this trauma, you know, this is just, it is a small part of what we're going to end up getting at the end of the day because we have to start these babies are they traumatized and, and it's just like we don't get it we you know we as adults going through this phase of you know the omnicron and all that but it, it's affecting the kids because it's it's kind of bouncing them off the wall on any kind of stability that they were having or looking for so now you know it's it, it, it's complicated and it's, 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 um, I would love to sit down and have some conversation with you about it. We can reach out, you know, and let's talk about, it. I, you know, I've been seeing a lot of it. I have a after school program, K through, um, K through 12th grade, you know, but, you know, my high school has been, I have not had this many high schoolers showing up in program, you know, since this, you know, I have over, 28 high schoolers that actually show up, you know, and they do that on their own. They, you know, they come, you know, and that's just, you know, but the middle schoolers is just kind of out and trying to find, it's, it's a lot, it's, you know, it's complicated and every, every case is an individual case, but it's a trend going on with this Instagram and this stuff that's going on on Instagram that's making, you know, and, and the guidance they're getting is not the right guidance when it comes to some of the young people that they run with. So they have to, you know, but um, yeah, so one less, we let's talk and have some conversation about it because it goes, you know, it, it's, it's deep and it's, and it's not getting better. You know, as you can see now, the even the rate of how many young people are incarcerated has risen, you know, in the last few months. So. And that was just me just kind of statement, you know, I'm very passionate about when it comes to our young people and what, what happens with them. So, um, yeah, you know, I, my job is to keep them away from, uh, the chief and where she don't have to go through all that. Right. So, um, but it is, it, it's, a, it, it's a lot and it's a challenge and, you know, you, you need a lot, you need a lot of, um, you need a lot of support and, you know, family, you know, interventions and it's, it's, you know, 
everything that goes on. But you know, I'm waiting to hear what they. Let me get off because I know the young freedom singer is waiting to you know have some conversation. <laughs> Are there any further questions for Selena about the data report? All right, we can go ahead and move to the deep dive. Thank you, Selena. Thank you. So I'm actually going to present the first part of the deep dive. Um, okay, so as I mentioned, tonight's data deep dive is on girls. Um, I want to give a special thanks, a huge shout out to Julia Royo, Tumani Drew, and Dr. Alessandra Melendres from the Young Women's Freedom Center um, for their help in shaping this analysis. And then also another additional huge thank you to Dr. Melendres for being here tonight. Um, to present on their research. So I will go quickly through this to give uh, the majority of time to the next part of this presentation. Um, I just want to do a brief introduction on why it's so important to look at girls, um, both in research and in terms of reform. So uh, most research traditionally uses mix samples, both boys and girls, and because girls account for a much smaller percentage of the youth justice system, any evidence that we take from findings from mixed samples really obscures girls' specific needs and experiences. Um, and then related to that point, so we've seen huge declines over the past 30 years um, in the population of system-impacted youth. Uh, however, declines for boys have generally outpaced declines for girls, which really speaks to this need for gender-responsive approaches rather than this one-size-fits-all approach. I'm not going to go over the review of the literature, but I highly recommend you check it out if you have not already. Um, I'm going to briefly touch on admissions in 2020 by gender and then active caseload by gender. So um, in 2020, 25% of admissions into juvenile hall were girls. Um, what we know about uh, justice system involvement is that black youth are vastly overrepresented um, in justice system involvement and admissions to juvenile hall. Um, girls are especially overrepresented. Um, so in 2020, black girls accounted for two thirds of admissions for all girls in 2020. Um, black boys accounted for 56% of all admissions for boys in 2020. Um, what we know about admissions by gender and age is that on average in 2020, girls coming into juvenile hall, girls who were admitted into juvenile hall were younger than boys. So averaging 15 and a half years old in comparison to boys who averaged 16 years old um, at the time they were admitted. Admissions by gender and location of residence, um, something else that we saw in the data was that a larger percentage of youth admitted into juvenile hall um, were from out of county for girls in comparison to boys. So 50% of girls admitted in 2020 lived outside of San Francisco in comparison to 31% of boys. And something that has come up a lot in conversation is um, admissions by primary detention reason and how that differs by gender. So we do see that girls are much more likely to be detained to a, due to a warrant or a court order than boys. Um, that accounted for 50% of admissions for girls. 
We included this slide on admissions for girls by PREA concerns um, since we've started tracking this data in our case management system. Um, Juvenile Hall is mandated to um, do a PREA vulnerability assessment when young people are admitted into Juvenile Hall. And in the first six months of data um, that we have on this in our case management system, 40% of girls admitted into Juvenile Hall were noted as being vulnerable to victimization. Then I'm going to move us to active caseload by gender. Um, so this is our active caseload as of the last day of September, September 30th, 2021. 20% um, of our active caseload, excluding AB12, uh, were girls. Two-thirds of them were pre-adjudicated. Three-quarters of them lived in San Francisco, and by age, two-thirds were under the age of 18. Looking at the percentage of youth on our active caseload that were also active in programs, overall, slightly over half of youth on the JPD active caseload um, at the end of September were active in programs. But what we saw was that a larger percentage of boys on the active caseload were active in programs than girls. So 45% for girls in comparison to 54% for boys. I'm not going to go over this too in depth, but we also include a breakdown of the programs that young people were involved in, girls specifically, at this time. And then the last data slide uh, that I'll touch on is active caseload who are out of home placement by gender. So as of the end of September, out of boys who are out of home placement and girls who are out of home placement accounted for similar percentages of youth on active caseloads, so 22% for boys and 21% for girls who are out of home placement. Um, while girls accounted for less than 20% of out of home placement youth, they accounted for half of youth placed in RFAs, and most out of, girls who are out of home placement, 86% um, were in San Francisco. And then briefly touching on our current and next steps, um, so our overarching goal really is to better understand the specific needs of young people on our caseload to better serve them. Um, one thing that we're really focused on right now is gender-focused data collection and how to get better at this. Um, and one way that we can definitely improve is improving the data that we're collecting on gender identity. Um, I think JPD has historically not done a great job of tracking this data. Um, and so conversations that have started to come out is, first of all, how to collect that data, but how to also train our staff on all these different, um, you know, the difference between gender identity, sex assigned at birth, gender expression, all these different terms that maybe not all our staff is familiar with, and how to ask questions in a way that's not judgmental or dismissive, but is really affirming of youth. Um, identities and experiences. Another thing that we're focused on is expanding data collection to capture the various needs of young people on our caseload. So needs relating to housing and needs related to um, being pregnant or parenting and focusing on supplementing statistics with stories. So like you'll hear from the Young Women's Freedom Center, really just adding narrative and life experiences to supplement statistics that we might get from our data system that definitely do not tell us the whole story 
Um, focusing on gender disaggregated reporting, right? Like I mentioned at the beginning, so that girls are not lumped into this much bigger category of boys and having their experiences um, not really be fully understood. Um, so focusing on gender disaggregated reporting in our annual report in deep dives like this one, and then focusing on gender responsive interventions to make sure that we are better serving girls, particularly conversations on regional efforts to support girls. I included this slide before we had originally postponed this meeting um, where I recommended that everyone read the Through Their Eyes report by the Young Women's Freedom Center. Um, but now we are lucky enough to have this be presented in person. So just a brief introduction um, and Dr. Melendres can talk about it some more. Through Their Eyes is a research project that centers the voices and experiences of 51 cis and trans young women, trans young men, and gender expansive young adults impacted by the San Francisco juvenile delinquency system. But before we go to that, I'm happy to take any questions specific to this data report, or if you think of more questions after the second part, I'm happy to answer them then. Anything works. Are there any questions for Selena at this time? I would just add one thing to Selena's report, which is that when we, when I first got here, it felt like proportionally we had a lot more girls in placement. And so we saw that number coming down more steeply over time during the pandemic. And I just wanted to give that context because it was a, was a stark difference at the beginning. And to Selena's point now, when you look at girls and boys, the percentages actually are the same, but they were uh, not that way at the outset. That's all. Thanks, Chief. Any questions for Selena at this time before we continue the deep dive? I have maybe a question, maybe a comment, maybe just a conversation point. Um, I have a something I don't know what it is. Uh, on page 11, I think it's heartbreaking and really scary and also not entirely unexpected that the percentage of girls or women identifying folks admitted to juvenile hall were noted as being vulnerable to victimization. I think that's um, that's really scary. It's really terrifying. You know, I think we've already discussed and have acknowledged that being involved in the system can be traumatizing or re-traumatizing and really sometimes this could have the unintentional consequence of resulting in more victimization. I think that's especially scary in, in light of just slide 11 plus slide 20 and 21. Uh, it looked to me like there were fewer girls in, in programs. I'm wondering if we know why that is, if we need more kinds of programs, if we are doing something to see if we need more providers or different uh, variety of programs. Um, yeah, it's, it's just really, it's alarming. Can I jump in, Selena? I just want to note that just to remind, like as a reminder that what we have been tracking historically here is the program referrals probation makes. So they wouldn't necessarily include the programming that young women were already hooked up with outside of the department. So that's a change we're trying to make here, right? Is how do we capture that so we can report it to you all more effectively? But what you're seeing there is our referrals doesn't reflect the breadth of whether the young women who cross paths with us are actually engaged in programs. 
um, and, and many, many of them would be, and it wouldn't be reflected in that data. I, I still wonder, though, if um, if we could get, I, I would love to see if the majority of all of our youth were in programs. Um, and I, I agree, it's a little bit hard to say if they are because we have the missing data point of if they're connected to other programs. Um, but I, I still wonder if there are additional programs or additional um, kinds of like variety of programs or number of programs that we could increase. Chief Resplina, did you want to respond to that? Oh, sorry. No, I wasn't. I, I didn't have a response other than I was nodding my head as. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I can't. Speaking. <laughs> the uh, presentation, I have to scroll through to see if people are <laughs> making um, notes. Of. And I think it's also a great question for our collaborative speakers who are here with us tonight, right? What is, what is it that they would, how would they answer your question? What do they feel there's more of a need for? Um, I would, I would want to hear it from them. Um, I actually, sorry, I, I don't mean to monopolize. Uh, I do wonder if because the 40% statistic in slide 11 is really just sticking to me so much. Um, I, I wonder if there is additional programming or counseling or making sure is there like a person that's connected directly to each woman identifying girl identifying youth to make sure that they talk about these topics of being victimized, uh, being vulnerable to that and, and discussions about why and, and all of those things. This could be very hard discussions to have, um, but it's, it seems like they're pretty necessary. And if they are happening, I would love to hear more about it. Chief Miller, do you want to talk about SF Soul? I think you would do it more justice than I did if I, I talked about it. I was going to say the same thing to you. <laughs> Um, I would actually be useful, I think, at a future meeting to have SF Soul talk about the work they do. It is targeted towards serving young people in exactly that situation. Um, and it is a program that we can make referrals to here. And some of our probation officers in particular are very hooked into the program. So we can have a combination of um, Donna DeLeon, one of our probation officers, perhaps speak with SF Soul at a future meeting about how that work happens here. Um, and perhaps to to Selena's point, as everyone in the hall is getting trained and comfortable with some of these deeper conversations to what that looks like there. We have some folks working in the hall who also really have that kind of lens to their work. Um, but I don't have a kind of good organized way to give you the information tonight. It's best to hear directly from them, I think. Are there other questions or comments about this aspect of the deep dive before we head into part two? All right, I think we can move on. Can I please get um, access to share my screen?
You should have oh, access just, now. Yeah? yeah. Thank you. Okay. Okay, great. Can everyone see it? Yeah. Thank you so much for um, having the Young Women's Freedom Center join tonight and share um, some of our research um, from our community experts. And just to note, we call uh, participants community experts. It's what a, it's a term one of our youth organizers coined. Um, so that's what I'm referring to when I uh, talk about uh, the people that we interviewed. Um, you all, I think, are pretty familiar with the Young Women's Freedom Center and our mission. Um, back in 2016, when I met Jessica, um, she really had a big vision for having research be an integral part of the work that we do. Um, and so we, you know, started that in 2017. And as part of the research that we do, we always do participatory research. So we train young people to like to do everything. We, they did the re then for our first project. They did the research design, the interviews. They did all the outreach and the data analysis. And so I work more as a facilitator uh, to to teach them skills so that they can conduct it and guide the work. Our first research project um, was back in 2000. We finished in 2018. Uh, we interviewed 100 young people or 100 people from San Francisco who had been involved, system involved. So it was inclusive of multiple systems. And we took a life course survey. And it was two hours to look at the entanglement between multiple institutional systems and how that kind of led to the experience of the carceral state for young folks, um, although the focus was juvenile hall. Um, and we presented the report at City Hall, and when the, we did that, there was the 100 people, um, but then the legislation passed, and we really wanted to focus on uh, young folks who were specifically detained at JJC and figure out like what their experience was, really dig into their specific experience there, and what recommendations they have as, they move, as we move forward, particularly important to this meeting this evening. Um, and so through their eyes was a report that we did based on the other 100 interviews, but we pulled out the 51 people with that experience and the young people actually we trained for months and months and they coded and analyzed all the interviews. Um, they did it in a computer analysis program um, and they did a really incredible job doing that work. And you can see here some similar to what Selena was saying. Um, these are the 51 people that were incarcerated at JJC and they did range from different time periods. So it was. Um, and there are age ranges big, so it was a large span of time that they are sharing their experiences around. But it was disproportionately black and also disproportionately LGBTQ, with 41% identifying that way. Um, and here's our report, our through their eyes report. They came up when they did the data analysis. They came up with five themes, and so those are like five major things that were really, you know, arising from all the 51 interviews. The first one was around questionable reasons for incarceration. So a lot of the young, the people that were detained in the girls unit, they, um, a lot of it was for survival crimes. Um, so, you know, we felt that wasn't really the best place for them to be when they really needed their needs being met instead of being criminalized. Um, and then some other ones were just being pushed in the system for reasons that felt kind of unjust, like in school or certain situations, or maybe a youth in a different area uh, wouldn't be, the police wouldn't have been called. And so that didn't feel fair. Um, and then there was a whole area about just their experience on the inside and really a lot of problems that arose while they were being detained, which I'll get into later. Um, and, and, you know, folks, they just kept talking about just the enduring impact of what incarceration left on them and how long it takes to recover and heal from that experience. And then the last two things are really centered around the recommendations, which I'll share. So 
this was definitely really hard to listen to young people describe their experience on the inside. Um, several people described incidents of physical harm inside. Um, it usually revolved around young people being restrained during some kind of uh, dispute inside and just being like really excessive force. But there were several people who were very harmed. Um, during that process, or just the shackling, like they would fall. There was actually a young woman who was um, pregnant and fell while shackled, and it's just really an unsafe condition for young people. Um, another issue that probably will be an issue thinking about in the future is that people really complained about uh, cis males being in the unit, that it was seen, it was hard to avoid uh, uncomfortable circumstances when they were changing or things like that. And they, many of them reported how uncomfortable it was. And as note, Selena noted, um, and I believe in our study, about 70% of young, of the young people we uh, interviewed had experiences of childhood sexual abuse. So that was just incredibly re-traumatizing to have um, that happen, you know, having just, you know, it, the males in the unit itself. Um, another big area that they spoke about was health. And I think one important thing was about mental health because when they came in, many of them said they'd never been on medication and they would immediately get prescribed very strong medication, like psychotropic drugs and had maybe adverse side effects to these drugs. Um, and so one thing they just complained about getting given the pills and then like being left alone. And I think that that's just a substandard care. That's not the care that you get on the outside. It's not the care that you or I would get. Um, you know, they wanted to have more follow-ups, you know, like you would have your doctor change the dose, all of that, and that didn't happen. And so some of them were just reporting being very drowsy, having a hard time completing their schoolwork and, and other kind of issues. Um, the other area was therapy. I think a lot of people, they describe therapy being potentially a, a positive thing and a healing activity, but they said that they just couldn't trust a therapist that they received through the juvenile justice system. They just felt that they were going to report, that they were going to say their personal business in court. And so that was really not a, a beneficial time, kind of a waste of time if they didn't feel that person was going to trust that could trust, you know, the, the things they were sharing with them. And the other thing that they kind of, you know, didn't always love was they really wanted a provider that was non judgmental and culturally affirming. Um, and I think that, you know, for, again, the standard care on the outside, you get to pick your therapist and they didn't really have that choice. So it was hard to find someone they connected with. Um, but for those that did, they did find it very healing, but they all really just unanimously said they would prefer that to be outside of the um, juvenile justice system. So going to get into some of the recommendations. Um, one big area was around just placement self-advocacy. So what that what folks were talking about there was that when they when they had to be placed outside of their home, um, and that you know that was there wasn't another option. They really wanted to be a partner uh, with the judge or with whomever was making that decision. They want they knew what was best for them. They knew what was safest for them, and they just repeatedly felt like. People weren't listening to them. A lot of people would run away from their group home settings. They were unsafe for many instances, and then they would get pushed deeper into the system because of that. Um, and they, you know, they are some of them wanted to live in San Francisco, some didn't. So it was really a case by case basis, but it really needs to entail really listening and partnering with young people uh, to make those like such huge decisions for them. And then they had a lot to say about probation. And so they, you know, were thinking about what were ways that this could have worked better. One of the biggest things that they just always, that folks said was like, why aren't we talking about getting a job? One of the biggest reasons why I'm in here is because I need, it was financially related. I was trying to meet my needs. And so they really wanted meaningful, well-paid employment. And so they wanted to support with that. Another thing that they kind of you know, did, didn't like was the requ there were so many requirements. And so, you know, it's like drug testing, if it was in a drug case, 
family therapy, personal therapy, anger management, all these courses. And it was so many things that it was really hard to manage all that living in the Bayview where there's only buses that come, you know, are kind of irregularly. And so that was a, a difficulty. And their biggest goals, really, they kept expressing, I want to finish school and I want a job. But when you have all these other goals, that makes that pretty difficult. Um, and then they also talked about just being monitored too much. But one of the biggest things they said was kind of the idea of being outed. So like the probation officers would come and pull them out of their class so that everyone would find out. And that was really stigmatizing and humiliating. And they didn't think that that was really beneficial. And so really, you know, conducting with privacy and respect around those kind of meetings so that other people didn't know what they were about. And then our other set, oh, and I have some quotes here. I'm not going to go through them, but I can share the report. And so we have in, in the report, actually, it's a much, it's a long narrative and there's lots of the direct quotes throughout the whole thing from young people about their experience. And those kind of are easy to find if you even just want to flip through and read those. And so our last one, theme five, was what could have made a difference? So we asked them a lot, like what would have made a difference in your life? Um, during that time when you were involved in the juvenile justice system. One thing that they really spoke about was positive strength-based interactions. And so they said, you know, going to anger management class, drug tests, all that does is focus on a person's, you know, the things that the system feels they failed. Instead of thinking about what are they doing well, what are areas that we can really focus on that build their, like builds a positive future as opposed to looking retrospectively at other things. And so that was a big area they wanted to focus on. And, you know, a lot of folks said they wanted supportive service providers. So that could include like a probation officer, or a social worker, anyone. And, you know, it was definitely a mixed bag. There were some people that um, when there was someone really loving, it really made such a monumental difference in people's lives. Um, when someone really showed they cared, went out of their way, all of that. But there was, you know, I would say the majority of this experience was kind of harming and people, you know, they, the negative, the interactions were, were negative and they kind of would put the kids down and weren't really helping them. And so that was a big area that they just were kind of, I would always say like, what aren't, isn't anyone kind of checking in on this? Like, should these people be working with children? And so it's really important that we get loving people who really can empathize and be not judgmental with our young people. Um, another area uh, was that they wanted services that address the root cause of the issue. And so when they're going in and being criminalized, a really a big of the, a lot of the issues are poverty and trauma. And so they wanted programs that actually focused on that as opposed to some other things. And another area was community support. Um, they really enjoyed a lot of the community, the CBOs. They really appreciated when someone who had been incarcerated before was the one working with them. They felt less judged. They felt a better ability to be open. Um, and they really enjoyed getting a lot of support outside of the system. And I wanted to sh just leave everyone, I hope I can figure this out, with uh, a video of some of our research organizers, just leave on a really positive note and just showing their brilliance and their leadership is young people. I am resilient because I was taught to always see the good in every situation, including the bad ones. I believe in you because I believe we are the voice and we are going to take action on all the injustices that are happening around the world right now. I believe youth have the leadership that it takes to build a better future. I believe that the youth should be heard and prioritized. The juvenile justice system should be shut down because youth should be treated better and should respect because they're only growing and making guidance in their life because you don't know what happens behind closed doors. The juvenile system has hurt 
and split up a lot of families and it is time to put an end to these systems and say enough is enough. We did it for you. Loved ones who may not even be alive yet or possibly don't even know how to walk yet. We did it for you and your children and your children's children for the future of this country. I'm sorry, I'm having difficulty exiting. Okay, there we go. There you go. Thank you. And uh, we will open it up for questions. And I, I would just add uh, two things. One is I really want to thank you and everybody from the center who's hung in there tonight for this part of the meeting. We really appreciate it. Um, and uh, you know, I think what I want to say to our commission is that this document for me really offers every time I look at it and important roadmaps for our work. This is actually my version. I printed it off early. <laughs> These are my tabs of the things I think we need to work on um, and that, you know, what I really appreciate about it, what I hear from it and read from it is the need to value choice and voice for our young people for all of our young people. The real role that not having basic needs, like the, 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 what that sets in motion, just not having basic needs met and the fact that we need to make sure we're doing that, um, that we do need to be gender affirming and responsive in everything that we do, and really the importance of procedural justice. That could be a whole presentation on its own, a whole other discussion for all of us, but really making sure that the young people we meet with and work with feel heard and seen and respected and genuinely believe that we are working with them in their best interest. You know, all of the when you read the accounts, the narratives in this in this research, you really hear the places where we didn't do that. And so I do encourage people to look at it. And I really want to thank everybody involved for not only sharing your stories, but then also giving recommendations. Right. I think both parts of this report are so important. And you know hearing the experiences and the truths people have is essential and then also seeing the what do we do next um i just really appreciate all of it and so i will uh stop talking other than that that's my kind of editorial icing on the cake of what i think is just great great work um thank you so much for uh being here tonight and waiting to uh have this moment to share it Thank you, Chief, and uh, thank you, Ms. Melendrez, uh, for the presentation. Um, I'll open it up for questions or comments at this time. Commissioners, uh, Commissioner Brodkin. Yeah, I just want to thank you so much. I, I thought it was very moving, very important, sort of brings back uh, to us the realities of what young people are. This is the second time I've heard it, I think. I went to one of your earlier presentations of it, and it's, I mean, I could hear it a couple more times and, you know, to really absorb what's being said. And I want to read the full report again um and i just I, I can't thank you enough for doing it and feeling like it it, it made me feel like oh i really don't want to talk about some of this other stuff like contracts and stuff this is what we should be talking about and anyway th thank you 
if you it, it does have a big effect really motivates you to like okay we got to change this we got we yeah Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Moses. Yeah, I sincerely echo what um, Commissioner Brockman said. I think that was the thing was so I like it so much, you know, very inspiring. And I'm hoping that um, you know, we continue doing this kind of thing. I really like it. Really thank you for bringing this to our attention. Mr. Shorter? Yes. Uh Yes, thank you for this uh, for this report. Um, thanks to the Young Women's Freedom Center, who will always have a special place in my heart. Um, I'm having sort of a deja vu, um, and my deja vu goes back um, a, a bit. While certainly not having sat been been sitting on this on this commission at the time. Um, the deja vu sort of brings me back to um, several years ago um, in 1996, I believe, um, I had co-authored um, um, a report, one of the a groundbreaking report, as, as it's still referred to, um, on the status of girls in our San Francisco juvenile justice system. And that was the out of sight, out of mind uh, report that really kind of galvanized. And that was my intent certainly um, to help galvanize um, this, uh, the issues, uh, discussion in response to the issues um, girls are facing, or girls are facing not only within the system, but um, just in our community uh, at large, especially uh, girls of color and most specifically black girls and uh, Latinos, Latinas. Um, some of what is reported uh, in this report, uh, the deja vu is like, this is exactly, <laughs> things have not changed much. Um, and I don't know what, um, how, familiar folks are with some of the issues that we were really working and had real movement i think through the 90s and into um uh you know 2000s uh around addressing the issues um girls in the juvenile justice system not only here in san francisco but really sparking regional movement um and national uh movement and certainly um, the iteration um, of the Young Women's Freedom Center um, was a part of that, that particular effort. But even prior to that report, um, truth be known that one of the, the, the first real reports on the status of girls in our juvenile justice system in San Francisco was, believe it or not, issued uh, or commissioned by the um, the Junior League of San Francisco. Um, and even in the report that we did in 96, similar concerns, similar issues and challenges that they had um, um, chronicled. And I believe that was like 1975 or somewhere. 
So I only see this one to offer and, and perhaps not the, the most articulate way sort of of um, um, historical um, context. We have been um, looking at this, the, the issues pertaining to girls in our justice system for a long time. The deja vu is that while certainly while girls are uh, under the jurisdiction of of probation, we can't resolve all of the issues and challenges that girls may have. Um, but I, I do think that the department uh, has ebbed and flowed. Um, there are spurts of, of activity, um, a galvanizing of resource to start addressing um, some of these issues, and then it wanes, and then we kind of come back and revisit it as if it's these are new issues. Um, what I'm most interested in is in moving forward um, those recommendations. Um, a lot of those recommendations are the same recommendations from 30 years ago. Uh, some are new. Um, but I'd like to have a better idea of as we move into this uh, next coronation of, of our, of our um, um, the, you know, juvenile hall and moving into the community, as we discussed earlier, what are things that we can be doing better and differently um, in the scenario that we're moving towards that can be a better service and support to girls? Um, so not asking for an answer right now. I'm just putting on the table as we're reimagining, we're retooling and re configurating um, how some of these recommendations um, may be bettered by a new scenario, or we don't want issues to fall in the cracks as we move forward. Because 10 years from now, I do not want to have deja vu uh, again, relative to some of these critical uh, issues and recommendations that have been yeah. made. You know, and Commissioner, I would just note, I mean, the numbers of kids in the system are so much smaller than mm -hmm. they were when those reports were authored previously. And it gives me like hope and desperation that this is a moment to make that change, right? If we can't make real change with such small numbers of young people mm -hmm. involved, uh, then I do lose hope. <laughs> so, right. so I do think there's differences for us right now. I was very lucky to be on a meeting just before this today with Dr. Melendrez and others, right? Um, although, yeah, I don't know if Dr. Melendrez is on it, but with, with some of the um, experts at the Young Women's Freedom Center talking about some steps we can all take forward together. And, you know, there are things we need to work on now. Um, and the other thing that's come up, you know, and just to highlight is this idea that with so few girls coming through the justice systems in each county right now, it's a real question about what does a regional approach look like? Um, and that's something that I'm very interested in being a part of. With the Young Women's Freedom Center, who are involved in multiple counties at this point doing really great work. Thanks, Chief. Thank you, Commissioner. Other questions or comments for Dr. Melendres? Go ahead, Commissioner. 
Um, yeah, I it's, it's funny. I, I'm looking at this video, you know, and I have I have worked with uh, quite a few people that have done that always on the video. So they they all know me. They all know. They call me. Um, I'm uncle to everybody. So you know, if you ask one of them who who the commissioner is, Mr. Commissioner Spingola, they'll give you another name. I always tell everybody, you know, people come to my community and ask for James. People don't know who you're talking about, but you come through there and ask for Uncle. So, Uncle, I ain't gonna put my name out there, but but it is, you know, because I've been through some things, and you know, I I have been real big, right on, real big, and and it's still and it's showing up more today than and we just talked about it earlier. I've been real big on the trauma in the mental health piece that has to come along with this work that we do, right? Because they're right, right? You can't have somebody come in and have a conversation with you and they don't know how you live or how you have lived, right? So you can't come in and say that you're a therapist, you're a mental health person or you're a therapist and you're trying to help me and you have not a clue on what I've been through at a young age, right? So you know, it is, it is so hard. And this is where we as a city and a lot of funding and um, need to be kind of start being put in because we all as adults and I always tell everybody, I have a revolving chair in my office that when somebody get up, somebody get out, but I can only do so much and I need to be able to hand a young person off, uh, you know, to somebody who actually has a PhD and can take them to a to another place. But it is they are so they are so small and few to find people that can relate or even look like the young people that need the support, right? And it it is so hard. I'm actually working <clears throat> with Dr. Ken up at UCSF, and we're I'm actually trying to do a healing center now. Um, and it's, it's really, you know, it's really, you know, I'm trying to use, we're going to use some interns that come in, but, you know, the interns that's coming in, very few are of color. There, there's, there's no black interns in there. You know, they have one Latino intern in there. Um, and it's just, it's, and you know, it's hard to bring them into your community and think that they can work with your community when they don't know how, you know, how that community, you know, how, you know, that, how that, that community been traumatized or, you know, them young people been traumatized. So, you know, I think, you know, a, a lot of focus that we do and we should be focusing on is the mental health piece, is the trauma. And you have to kind of start the healing process, right? And, you know, not focus on the trauma and start trying to say, how do we heal? now right for the young people how do i start healing you how do i start making sure you're okay right you know because like i said i take my title very serious everybody who know me knows that you know i tell you i'm not one of them people i don't do my work for the money it's not about the money it's about the impact it's about making sure i save a life right i'm not gonna save the world but i know i can save a life but it's the you know we need to start finding and you know and I love the Young Women Freedom Center, Women's Freedom Center. I have been working with them for quite a while now. Um, so, but it's 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 wow and it's like you know I'm looking at them on the video and it's just like they still you know it's the same thing like Commissioner Shorter said it's the same thing you know ten years ago you know we still having the same issue because we don't have we don't put into what what is a mentor 
for a young person. And a mentor is, you know, you know, you have to go back to when mentors was mentors, somebody who will come get you, take you out of that environment, show you somewhere where you can undress your undress that armor that you wear every time you come out your household, you know, and you know, because you know, our kids wake up every morning and you know before they put their clothes on they put their armor on you know so it's just like if you don't understand that then you're not you you can't help you know it's like it's hard for you to see it so i think you know focusing on and you know i you know like i say i always you know big praise for young women freedom center because i know i never you know i've been through some things in my life but i never i never can compare my trauma with the trauma that young young ladies go through in their lifetime it does it's no comparison there you know it's just like but how do you get them to start healing and you have to find folks that can help them heal that you know been there and found their way out so i you know i just praise you all for you know just doing that work and you know for me it's very it's passionate i have a bunch of young ladies that i work to and i just had um I just had a young man, young lady, 19 years old, came home to visit her brother. He died the next day. They were doing the funeral today. And um, and then what makes it so bad is the mama came and threw her out the house. And it's just like, wow. You know, it's just like, see, you know, it, it was, it's just too much. It's, it's so much trauma, you know. And I was scared to let her go to the funeral. And, you know, I shut the building down today just so she can have you know, I can be somewhere where, you know, I couldn't go myself, but, you know, I just so I can be, you know, where she was, you know, before she went in, she was calling like, I'm just, I can't go in. My anxiety, everything's up. And how do you, how do you, how do you heal that? You know? So it's a lot, man. But I think we focus on the trauma, not the trauma so much, but the healing is what we need to start trying to focus on with our young people. And it's more of a comment for me than it was a question. So <clears throat> that's all I had. Thank you, Commissioner. Are there any other uh, questions or comments about the presentation by the Young Women's Freedom Center during the deep dive? Dr. Melendres, thank you so much for um, your time and patience and uh, waiting till uh, uh, the eight o'clock hour to um, present. We really appreciate the groundbreaking work uh, of the report as well as of the organization and center. So um, thank you again for uh, spending uh, your evening with us tonight. And I'm sure we will uh, be in contact uh, much more uh, over the next few months. Thank you so much. Chief, I'll uh, go ahead and hand it back to you to continue the chief's report. Okay, may I have the controller? I will be fast. Can you see the slide? Yes. Okay. Okay, so I'll go through my uh, report. Um, I'll start really quickly with workforce updates, as we always do, um, starting with some uh, retirement since the last time we were all together, some really, really long standing members of the department who I want to acknowledge. 
Um, beginning with Tony Powell, who was a probation officer here. She was here for 34 years um, in the department. She had a variety of positions, and I, I want to stop and pause on that because she's actually one of the few people here who had leadership roles in the hall, in probation services, and at the ranch. She was actually the first female black director at the ranch. Um, so she went through some glass ceilings here, and she retired at the end of December. Um, I also want to note the retirement of Karen Sanchez, another longtime probation officer, also joined the department 34 years ago as a counselor, spent a few years at adult probation, but then came back here for the bulk of her career as a probation officer here. And then two members of Juvenile Hall, um, Tracy Haynes, one of our senior counselors who worked here for over 40 years, and Carlos Chen, one of our counselors who um, in comparison to everyone else I just listed, only worked here for 24 and a half years. So he was a newbie relative to the other folks who have retired um, since we were last together. Uh, and then I want to note um, uh, a couple uh, hires. One is a rehire, Elisa Perez, who came back here as our custodial supervisor. She had been here. She went away for a little bit. She's back. And Aisha Matthews, who has just the best, most awesome energy. She has joined us as a secretary. She has three jobs here. She's at the front desk. We finally have somebody back at our front desk. Um, and she works for uh, two of our probation units, special services, and also AB 12. Um, she came to us from the school district. And then I just wanna note that we are in the process of doing um, uh, recruitment for hiring for our senior counselor positions. We have seven active senior counselor positions right now. Um, four of them are acting because so many of our seniors have retired in the last two years. And so we are going through the process of actually creating that list so we can have some folks be actual seniors. Um, uh, most likely from within the department, of course, but really needing to do that so that we can assess our needs. Um, you'll also see us bringing in some provisional counselors in the next few months uh, as we've had retirements and departures and particularly with the impacts of COVID. Um, staffing is hard right now here at the hall. We need to make sure we can uh, keep it going. In terms of moving on to transformation updates, just want to start real quick uh, with a note about Catholic Charities. So as you all know, when we were at last year, um, you supported our move to use some of the state funding that we have to keep Catholic Charities open through the end of the fiscal year while we, in parallel, start on a planning process um, to figure out what, what is the group home, the STRTP, that we want to have here in San Francisco. Um, there are currently three boys actually placed at the boys' home, Catholic Charities Boys' Home. Catholic Charities is in the process of figuring out exactly how much funding they need through June. Uh, to keep operations going while we're in this planning phase. And we're starting planning both with our city partners, DCYF, and particularly HSA on what we collectively need as a city um, in terms of that placement. We'll also be hearing from the court and other stakeholders. And then also starting to have some meetings um, scheduled now with Catholic Charities around what that could look like. So more on that as we move forward. And then in terms of um, alternative family services, which we talked about a lot tonight already, um, our, our uh, RFAs, our foster homes, right now we have two young people placed in our AFS homes. And we continue to uh, build out that program. In terms of DJJ realignment, 
Um, as you all know, when I was here in December, I let you know that we had our DJJ realignment subcommittee, our local subcommittee charged with creating San Francisco's plan had just finalized its report, its plan that we submitted to the state before January 1st for what San Francisco will be doing to support young people who otherwise would have been eligible to be committed to the state. So that plan, all 40 plus pages of it went to the state at the end of December. Um, and then with that plan submitted to the state, we now move forward to actually start spending the allocation that we received, our first year of money that we've received from the state to support that work. So we will be going in front of the Board of Supervisors to take that funding off reserve and to spend it in the ways that our subcommittee decided on. And the reason I um, bring this up is that I, uh, Commissioner Chu asked earlier, how are we doing some investment around some of the more serious cases and um, situations that some of our young people in the hall and there for a long time are engaged in. And so some of the strategies that that funding will support include um, and new and enhanced credible messenger programs, um, whole family support, including flexible funds for our families, and then some collective training of all system partners together to best support um, this particular group of young people. But I really want to highlight the credible messenger piece. Um, because to your question, Commissioner, about what are we going to do differently to support young people who may be in the hall for a long time, this new investment will, will create more opportunities for credible messenger programming for kids in the community, in placement, and in long-term secure setting. Um, but I think it is especially relevant for the, the young people, the young adults who find themselves with us for a long time right now. So we will be working on um, how that funding that we got from the state will actually go through and to community organizations to do this new credible messenger work, again, in community for kids in placement and as new hall programming for our secure youth treatment facility kids and for any young people who are in the hall who are eligible for this funding. Um, I also just want to note as a side piece that we are also in conversation now with the Youth Law Center, San Francisco Unified, and then hopefully Community College around some new collaborations around education for the young people here with us for a long time who've completed high school. We'll come back with more reports on that in the future. Um, and then the last thing I just wanted to note, Selena already said it in her data report tonight, but we've had our first young person who did receive a commitment by the court to what's called the secure youth treatment facility, basically the local equivalent of DJJ. So in one case, a young person who's already been with us for a very long time in the hall now has a multi-year commitment under that new law. Uh, to be with us for um, a number of more years, potentially, depending on how things roll out for that young person over time, but they face a multi-year commitment here. And that's the first of those kinds of commitments. It will not be the last, it probably won't be the last this month. We have a few very serious cases um, being resolved now. We will keep coming back to you as we roll out that those programs in the hall, more specifically for that longer term, older group of young people. And then moving on, just a quick touch back on third sector and the long conversation we had in December. Um, following the last commission meeting, I had two debriefs. One was with the members of the Juvenile Justice Providers Association, and then a second with probation staff to get feedback on what they think is going well, what they think needs to be retweaked in this process. And then I've engaged back with third sector with the um, follow up from some of those conversations. Um, the work groups are continuing. We're still in that phase two. And actually, a lot of the conversation, particularly in the case planning work group, is about 
um, that well-being advocate, the position that was came up when Patty was presenting earlier tonight, and what can that really look like? Kind of what can well-being teams look like, well-being advocates? So it is an example of where um, some of the proposals in that closed juvenile hall report are actually now in discussion and us vetting out how we can actually make them real. Um, and then we were planning on coming back to the commission at the February meeting with a report out on the work of phase two as promised, bring it back to you at that time and show you kind of the work that's been done and uh, have an ongoing discussion with you about how that's going. And then just moving on to AB 12. So when we were here last December, um, this came up in conversation. AB 12 means as our young people who are no longer on probation, they're called non-minor dependents. Basically it's extended foster care. So whether young people come through probation or come through child welfare on their 18th birthday, um, if they're eligible for AB 12 up through age 21, they get ongoing support from the system, including financial support. This became a really big issue during the pandemic because with some changes in the state law, we knew we were going to have a big group of young people uh, graduating, kind of exiting out of, a, of state support, AB 12 support on December 31st. Um, and that was actually 43 young people who on the 31st of December were no longer going to be receiving that state support. And so I know that this had come up as a question previously, and I wanted to share with you that in the fall and particularly going through December, there was really an amazing collaboration that happened the juvenile court judge, uh, Roger Chan, Robin Love from Human Service Agency, she presented at one of Commissioner Brodkin's program committee meetings, and our AB12 social workers and Kwanzaa Morton and Gabe Calvillo in leadership here to really come up with um, ongoing supportive plans for the young people who are exiting out of the system on December 31st. Um, I'm really pleased to report that they came out of this of that time period um, stably housed. Um, some of them, ones who aren't stably housed, have transitional housing in place right now. I'll move us to the next slide, actually, for a second. Um, so 18 of the youth came out stably housed in kind of long-term housing. The others are in transition housing right now. And 25 of the youth were identified as needing ongoing financial support even after they exited off the state support. And so the city has actually decided to commit those funds for them. So Human Service Agency is committed to providing ongoing stipends for those 25 young people. Um, and then um, they will also be providing stipends for the next group of young people exiting out of the system, which will be in this window between now and June, another 12 youth. Next year, we know we will see next fall, another 23 youth exiting out of the system. I bring that up to you today to say that we will be coming to you as part of our budget with a proposal for how to continue to support them um, past the time that they exit out of the system with, with financial support. So stay tuned for that in our budget. But I really just wanna thank the folks in the system and community who came together to support these young people at a very hard time for them when they were looking at losing this ongoing support. Um, a number of the young people came to court last week. They didn't have to, or on the 31st, they didn't have to, it wasn't a requirement, but they came and they, had a lot of really heartfelt stories about what this experience has been like and how supported they felt. And I think it was really meaningful for everybody involved to hear those stories. Oh, and I should note that in addition to covering their stipends, we also are covering their moving costs. And so we will also be coming to you to talk about that as part of our budget for the young people who do need to. 
And then finally, I wanted to bring us to what is a less cheerful topic, which is COVID-19 here at the department. Um, so uh, there's three things that I wanna make sure the commission knows in relation to COVID-19. One is that we, juvenile probation and other certain other departments in the city are now subject to a new booster requirement. So under the new orders, all staff here at JPD are required, anyone who's eligible for a booster presently has to have received their booster by February 1st. Um, and then for folks who aren't yet eligible, if they haven't had six months between their, or five months or whatever it is for the varying um, vaccines they received, whenever they become eligible for the booster going forward, they'll have a two week window to get boosted to be in compliance with this new order. So that rolled out a few weeks ago and we're working with our staff, including offering some on-site booster opportunities for staff who do need them. Um, also, I want to talk about the city telecommuting policy with COVID numbers surging again. The city has issued a request to all departments for non-essential workers to telecommute fully. Initially, that request was through January 18th. They've now come back and asked departments to keep staff working from home through um, until February 14th. So probation has a lot of essential workers. Um, the way we've managed this is obviously our hall staff is still here as they need to be. Um, our administrative staff are working from home um, unless they have to do some public facing work and then they're here for some time so that there's always some staffing to meet that need, but most of them can work from home. And then our probation services staff are 50% in the building, 50% telecommuting on any given day to reduce the number of people on site, but make sure that our functions here are covered and then do other work from home. So that's how we're managing that right now during this surge. And then I want to talk about juvenile hall. So in the last few weeks, we have seen more COVID in the institution. Um, we've had a total of eight young people test positive, um, half of whom came into the hall that way. And then in some cases we had, um, we had a spread of COVID among youth who were in the hall. We've also had a number of staff who've had to be quarantined for testing positive as well. So we've had to make some adjustments. Um, and uh, they have been a very heavy lift for the staff here. I want to thank Bobby Hall, the juvenile hall staff, and our HR staff all for the work that this has required. Um, we have had to work very closely with public health to uh, figure out where to house kids, which kids to isolate, who can be together. We have gone back to remote programming for the for now, including um, both school and out extracurricular programming. We've also had to go back to video visits for now. We had to go to um, virtual court hearings for the young people initially. As young people are getting cleared one by one um, from coming off of the virus, then we are able to have them go back into court uh, in person. And we're gonna be working with DPH very closely in the next few weeks as we kind of reopen. Um, but this was a really tough time for us and the world, right, with, this, with Omicron. Um, as a result of the virus, we actually have five units operating right now. Um, for what I believe is 18 or 19 kids right now, as I'm giving you this report. Um, and then um, uh, our hall, as you know, is a testing site where people can come and get tested to go into the hall. We used, we had previously enabled folks in the front building to be able to go back and get a rapid test wherever they needed one. Right now, um, to avert any likelihood that we could have a shortage of tests, we're just asking people to go get tests at juvenile hall if they're people who need to go in for work. So we've cut back on having it be kind of a resource to the front building 
hopefully we can bring that back online again once we know we have enough tests um, to make sure we can meet all of our core juvenile hall functions. Um, but it's uh, it's been a hard road the last few weeks, and it's also obviously had overtime implications for us as we've had to um, have staff go offline um, for their quarantine periods and isolation periods. And then the very last thing is I'm going to turn it quickly over to Steve Arcelona. Um, Commissioner Moses had asked us last time we were together for a quick report out on the status of our confiscated funds. And so I will give it to Steve just to let you know where we are with it. Uh, thank you, Chief, and uh, good evening, uh, Commissioners. Um, just as a reminder, uh, the confiscated funds uh, were monies that were taken from the youth uh, when they went into the juvenile hall. Uh, this money was collected uh, when the chief and I first came here. We found out that monies had been collected over decades, and in many cases, the money was never returned uh, for many different reasons. Um, and that money accumulated to the point where we had a total of approximately $63,000. Um, and so uh, we went through our files and identified uh, 600 youth uh, where we had addresses and we mailed letters uh, twice. Uh, because many were returned and we uh, went to DMV records to see if we could get more current addresses. Um, and uh, to date, we have given out approximately $2,500, uh, some as small as $9 and as much as uh, $600. Um, the remaining amount uh, uh, of $10,200, uh, we're still hoping that young people will come in. Uh, and so with the initial uh, 40,000, uh, uh, sorry, uh, with the, if, if we are able to disperse uh, the remaining $10,000, uh, there would be approximately $40,000 left uh, that could be used for purposes identified by the commission. Uh, I do want to end on a, a positive note. Uh, we did uh, implement a new process in June of 2021. Uh, and so that uh, we're actually collecting money uh, in the hall and returning the money to the youth as soon as they leave. And so there has been no young person that has left without getting not only their property, but any money that uh, was confiscated from them. Uh, that's all, Chief. Thank you. That's our, that is our report for tonight. We're happy to take questions. Thank you, Chief. Uh, Commissioner, <clears throat> Commissioner Moses, did you want to? Uh, yeah, I just want to compliment the chief and also Mr. Celino for being so transparency. That's really good. And thank you for the time it takes to do your best. So now we have unclear money that we can spend. I know we're not going to go to Hawaii. Right? <laughs> but, um, so again, thank you. 
maybe there will be a way of, you know, using it for some of the needy image, I mean, some of the needy clients that's in our system. So again, thank you very much for the time. And, you know, one, one strategy that we'll be putting some additional funding into this year is kind of really how do we support families, including real flexible funds for urgent needs. And so, you know, one thing I would offer the commission to consider along the way is whether we would add this money into that pot so that we could make sure that we have as much funding as, as possible really to meet the essential and basic needs of our families. So that may be a way down the road that would uh, be the most kind of efficient way to ensure that it gets to, I think, Commissioner Moses, a place that you want to know, which is families who need it and potentially grandparents too. Thank you very much. Mr. Spangola. Um, Chief, so on on the Omicron, so, so right now the, um, the young people are on 24-hour lockdown. Um, no. What, how are you guys doing that and how are you testing? Do so you they're not, right, so it's a good question. They're not on lockdown. Um, so young people, once we found out that there, that there was some COVID in the facility, we tested all the young people and then we kept units of young people together. So we isolated out anybody who tested positive, but the other young people stayed together in their units. So they are out and about in their units. They're interacting with each other. They're interacting with staff. We're just not moving them across units and we're not moving around the building right now. So programming went back to being virtual for our outside providers. And then on-site staff, our counselors and spy staff are there interacting. Um, but they're not in their rooms. They are moving around freely and they're doing programming on the units. Um, and then once we come through this phase, we'll be able to move around around the building and actually move young people um, more than we are right now. We did close the gymnasium, so they're not going to the gym because that's it's just a really contagious way to be. To be. Hey, so are you are you testing the staff that's coming in that's interacting? With the uh, that's going into the units with the young people, we do so ever so since, daily? since right. this, if not daily, the public health order that we follow is, is one that was put in place, um, I think in August, and it requires our staff. We're testing our staff twice a week, anyone who's going into the facility, and that's based on uh, the guidance that DPH has given us. So it's not daily testing, it's twice a week. So effectively. Our staff all have different schedules because of the nature of a 24 hour facility, but they each test on what is the equivalent of their own kind of Monday and Thursday of their work week. So that we're staggered always doing that testing and it's rapid testing and they wait in the lobby until they get the result. So that's what I was just gonna ask you too. Did you guys end up getting a hold of some rapid testing? We did. So we are considered an official state authorized testing site. Um, our staff had to go through some training and we had to go through an approval right. process. Right. So we do have sufficient tests for that. Okay. Um, and, and like I had said, initially we also were able to be kind of a testing resource for anyone in the front building, probation, DA, public defender who wanted to go get tests. But right now we're not doing that because we want to make sure we have enough tests for the people who actually need to go into the hall. And then to your question, once we knew that we had young people testing positive in the facility, we did test all staff on that day as well. And that was how we knew that we also had some staff who had to quarantine for a while. Yeah, because I know that the, rap, the rapid test was, they were so, it was um, very hard to get a hold of it. 
So, I mean, the schools couldn't get it. We didn't get it. I just happened to get a bunch of them the other day. Um, so, hey, look, I brought some, hey, look, it, it, you know, it's like gold right now. People don't understand. That's, it's like gold right now. You have to have it. And, you know, we're testing, you know, as, you know, as soon as your nose start running with you. So we're going through them. Hopefully we get more up in there. But, you know, the more you can stock up on, the better. Yeah. I mean, they, they, you know, even though they said they're not 100%, it's just good to have them and good to know, at least, you know, how to function if somebody do end up coming up negative or, you know, or positive, if somebody do pop up positive, at least, you know, to kind of take the next steps. For sure. And we, and so for when the kids get tested in the facility, we actually do PCR tests. We don't do yeah. bits, um, yeah. but we get the results back very fast because of the arrangement we have with DPH for them. Um, and then for staff, we do rapids and our test supply comes directly from the state because we're a state authorized test site. Okay. That was my question. Thank you, commissioner. Um, chief do you without obviously being able to see the future. Do you anticipate a scenario in which, you know, there would be. Not enough staff to staff the hall, or, I mean, I mean, like, is there like a. Is there like a nuclear scenario here where, you yeah. you know, contingencies are being set up in the event? Just because, um, for one, I've read obviously anecdotally in the media, it seems like we're still. Uh -oh. I'm going to just go ahead and answer your question while you're frozen, President Ariano. <laughs> so, um, the answer is yes. Uh, absolutely. Juvenile halls across the state are having this problem. There are some in other counties that have 30% of their staff out all at once um, because of the way Omicron spreads. Uh, so we are obviously tapping deep into our hall counselors and asking people to take on a lot of overtime shifts. We've also are starting the conversation about whether we will offer overtime to our probation officers to fill in those shifts if necessary. That's also something that's happening across the state. RPOs have the training that they need to do it. So we would potentially offer some shifts to our probation officers after we have offered them to the hall counselors, of course. Um, but we are thinking about those kinds of contingencies because the last two weeks in particular have been very hard for us to fill staff positions. And on top of that, have had to operate more units. So it's kind of the worst combination possible. Chief, you can always do like the school did. You can do uh, community volunteers. <laughs> can't. We we have to meet our state. Our I, hey, look, hey, look, I know, but that you know, it amazed me when the school said they were just taking volunteers. You can come in. You if you you can just come in and volunteer to be a assistant teacher or a, uh, somebody come in and wipe around. It that just amazed me that, and that's just how bad it is that. You know, you, you don't you don't need no experience. Just volunteer. They didn't. They didn't. You know, and it, that's how bad it is. So I mean, you know, I get it. You know, it's just, it's yeah. hard right now for everyone. It's just it's uncharted water for us. Yeah, for everyone, for everyone, for yeah. everyone, for everyone. Commissioner Brodkin, I saw your hand. I'm gonna just assume the presidency and call on you. <laughs> Who are you calling on? You. <laughs> Thank you. I just want to say, I'm so impressed with the AB12 work. Just yeah. amazing, amazing, amazing. Good, 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 good going for everyone. Thank the you. judge, HSA, everybody. And uh, so it, it's, it's kind of remarkable. 
It, thank you, and it is remarkable. I will tell you, oh, and I forgot to acknowledge adult probation. I'm sorry, I would be completely remiss. You know, in the 11th hour when we were worried about resources for a few kids, APD stepped up and offered housing for, for those kids, those young people as well. So they were, they were clutch for us. Um, you know, I think it was a, it just, people were working down to the last day on this, you know, and um, I, I was, you know, watching it transpire even in my inbox with our social workers and HSA and everybody really working together, the uh, social worker and the public defender's office, like it was a real example of what can happen when people come together. Uh, and it was a great thing to see at the end of the year. That's what it seemed like, yeah. yeah. Um, Chief Miller, I did have one question. I am concerned about going to virtual only visits, uh, contacts for our youths. I know when I was a family defender, that was a very contentious issue between the family defense community and, um, and the dependency system as a whole. I think we all here recognize the importance of family contact, uh, familial support, in-person support, obviously virtually there's a lack. Um, so I'm wondering if that's, you know, obviously being very mindful of the pandemic and wanting to prioritize safety, but I wonder if there's anything that can be done to increase the number of virtual visits, phone visits to do something. Um, is there a plan to move back to in-person visits? Will the number of in-person visits increase uh, sort of to make up for this lost time? Right. So it's a good question. And, and in the early days of the pandemic and for quite a long time, Commissioner, we were fully virtual as were pretty, basically every juvenile hall across the state. Um, and then we slowly went back to in-person visits on the weekends. When we went to virtual visits, and some of the commissioners will remember this, initially we dramatically increased the amount of time our young people were having those visits. So they were having them every night in some cases. And we actually saw more visits for our young people because their families couldn't, didn't have to travel. They could even have a 10 minute visit, right? Um, We've also, so right now we allow multiple phone calls and visits. We allow daily visits and multiple phone calls, which is a lot more than kind of what the norm had been. Um, we really had to make this decision. We had a lot of people coming to visit who were testing positive in admissions and who we had to turn away. Um, and I think it really led to me to the natural question of like, what were we, you know, through it, with our rapid testing, what were we missing any of it too? Um, and it was really hard to have families come up here to visit and tell them they couldn't come in. So right now in this window of time, we are going to stay this way for a few weeks. My hope is that this surge will end as fast as it came. That's what we've seen in other countries and hopefully we can revert back to the weekend in person visits, but it's right now we just, it is so hard for the young people every time we start identifying positive cases in the building and we need to not do it. Unfortunately, uh, I understand that President Ariano is having technical difficulties. Um, so, in his <clears throat> excuse me, in his stead, I will uh, pick up where we left off. Are there any further uh, commissioner comments or questions? Seeing none, pull up the agenda. Um, 
Deputy City Attorney, should we take public comment on this section? Yes. And do we see any hands raised, any emails, any anyone in the queue? Uh, no hands raised, but I have two uh, two messages. Um, first one's from Vilma Herrera asking, uh, are incarcerated youth forced into vaccination if they aren't already vaccinated? Do you want me to go ahead and, and respond to the question or not? I don't think we're technically allowed to respond and engage with public comments. Um, Deputy City Attorney, please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Um, if it's a, it's at it's at your discretion, Chief. If you if you wanted to, if it's something you can quickly answer and you wanted to do that, you could, but you're not required to. We offer vaccination to any young person who comes into our facility, but we. Of course, do not mandate it. Is there another message? There is. This one's a little longer. It was from uh, Dinky Enti. She had to drop off. So this is um, hello, everyone. This is Dinky Enti from CJCJ and JJPA. I'd like to make public comment on the earlier presentation on girls, uh, Dr. Melendrez, Jessica, and the YWFC team. Thank you for bringing this information to light. Many of us know some of these incidences through our experiences with the girls we have worked with and what they've shared with us, but to hear it in this broader fashion is very powerful. I really appreciate and recognize the commission and the chief for prioritizing this topic for review as this month's deep dive. I hope today's presentation to this powerful group becomes an impetus for real change within the JJC among probation services. Chief, Commissioner Shorter, I can see you're moved by this, as I think we all are. I only hope that can truly bring on real change, so it's not forgotten again until the next time someone presents on this topic, similar to how Commissioner Shorter pointed out that not much has changed from her 1996 publication. And I'm hopeful for the uh, hopeful the commission requests a regular update on the changes being made to address the specific needs of girls as listed in today's presentation. Thank you. Uh, you are muted, Vice President Chu. Thank you. Um, I was trying to remind the public to press star three to be added to the queue. Also would like to check in if we have any other hands raised, emails, other if I, queries. If I, if I may, I received a text from um, Juvenile Hall Director uh, Upal um, that I will share, which is to let people know that we are also now offering boosters to the young people who come into the hall if they have already been vaccinated, which is not a reason to come into the hall. Um, and that uh, obviously for any minors, we require parental permission to give them a vaccine. Any other form, any other public comment in any other form? I don't see anything else. Moving. No emails. Thank you. Moving on, uh, I see there are no committee reports. And I think the next agenda item is number eight, the JPC retreat and agenda items for discussion and possible action item. 
Okay, I was uh, appointed sort of ad hoc uh, chair to plan a retreat and I have nothing to report, but uh, I, nobody objected when I sort of said, let's talk about goals, let's talk about uh, our relationship to this new plan and um, how we might organize ourselves uh, um, in the coming year. Um, I think what I would like is, if does anybody remember who else is on this committee and I will convene it um, before the next meeting. Okay, who wants to be on this committee? <laughs> this committee is going to consist of a phone call, guys. It's a, it's, I think Catherine, you volunteered and um, so, I'm going to, uh, I mean, it's okay to have a committee of two. Okay, the two of us will meet. And uh, we're, we will discuss um, uh, th this thing about goals. Um, I think the idea is that our chief will come to the, uh, to the retreat and hopefully ahead of time saying, this is what I think the goals should be. And that's will be the basis for our discussion about goals. Does that make sense to you, Chief Katie? Oh, you weren't paying attention. Okay. Yes, you just gave um, me well, homework. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll ask you after the committee meeting, don't worry about it now. Um, and, uh, I think there's a question about, do we want to have a facilitator at the last meeting um, where Commissioner Chu was not? We did talk about having a facilitator. Does anybody have strong feelings about that? Um, our, our, our committee of two can discuss this, um, but if anybody wants to, I, I think it would be great to have a facilitator. I, I think just, you know, a neutral person, um somebody with the skill of getting from a to b which clearly none of us has since it's 9 13. um so uh i i want a facilitator i know a fabulous facilitator who's like okay get it done guys you know who's you know, there it's, it's a whole skill it's a whole thing um Catherine and I will discuss this if anybody has any opinions about this, but the question is, when are we going to do this? And like, I'm so tired now. I never want to do it, but um, maybe, we, um, you know, we're going to have these hearings with the board of supervisors okay, and I keep, we keep putting it off, but, um, and we don't know when this horrible disease is going to, uh, you know, be lessened. So uh, maybe does April sound good to people? Hey. Well, Commissioner, I do believe that after the end of February um, is when groups can start meeting in person under the current guidance we've received from the city. Okay, then I say April since we haven't planned it yet. Um, I think uh, based on what uh, President Amen, um, Joe said last time, all commissioner time out. So why don't we just wait till the mayor um, make announcement or make appointment? I think we most of us are due for renewal or for reappointment or for replacement. Uh, I think that's uh, uh, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, 
So I think that might coincide with Commissioner Brodkin's recommendation for an April hearing date or sorry, retreat date anyway. Right. By by then we should all be solid. <laughs> And anyway. I will I will take it upon myself to call the mayor's office and find out if there's anything pending and you know what what their time frame is. So um does that make sense? Sure. Okay, great. That's the end of the retreat. <laughs> Unless you want to be on the committee, Commissioner Short, we're talking. One, we're, we, I know you've done this sort of thing before. We are talking about a phone call. <laughs> One phone call. Oh, okay, I'll, I will gladly join. Well, you know, is that, I mean, is that however, a what I was looking at is that for a committee, um, does that become a public meeting? See, oh. because that would be the um. You would have to even a, the committee. You know, I don't think people are knocking down our doors to want to come to a retreat planning committee. So yes, it can be a public meeting if if you know anybody will welcome all players. You want to have ideas about our retreat? Please come. Um, so to, in the name of efficiency, which um, I would sort of ask our chief if she would come. Yeah, half of it. The other half we can talk about you, but um, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I have um, learned that if you're not at the table, you are on the menu. So I will definitely yeah, be, I your meeting. be there. <laughs> Does this mean then if we uh, are going to have a, a meeting of the ad hoc committee for the retreat that we need to decide a date now so that we can go ahead and announce it if we're going to have a call or meeting before our February regular commission meeting you want to put you want us all to go to our calendars now and plan a meeting that, that, that is not happening so my question is maybe our um secretary can do that in the next couple of days and find a time that is can is okay for all of us is that okay with you I, I believe as long as uh, they're then able to give sufficient public notice before we have that phone call, it would be fine. I think, okay, and we'll see who shows up because that would be entertaining. Um, so, I, I mean, yeah, okay, does this make sense to everyone? Pending, hearing no objections, <laughs> it makes sense. Oh God, I'm gonna die. It's 918. <laughs> I have another meeting at 930. So if there's any are there any other like let's make this efficient then. Are there any other comments uh or discussion items for agenda item number eight? The retreat and agenda items for the retreat. My question is if we're gonna get a facilitator, is that gonna be a paid one or it's going to be a volunteer one or and if it's going to be pay one where is the money going to be coming from do you have a budget for it i think we'll be discussing that at our committee call meeting so that we don't have to discuss it right now so commissioner moses if you'd like to be in on that 
call. Yes, <laughs> we'll discuss that right. that question then. You didn't bring it up, so I had to go. Any other points of uh, discussion? Or any action items that anyone wants to make a motion for for agenda item eight? Hearing none, uh, public comment on item eight. Uh, members of the public, please press star three. Inquire if we have any hands raised, emails, messages, anyone in the queue. Uh, no one with their hands raised or anything. No emails. Moving on to agenda item number nine, future agenda items. Are there any proposed future agenda items? What's with the election of officers? Do, do, um... My understanding is that that would be, that's slated for our February meeting. But we won't necessarily who's no who. Yeah, okay. Um, and I do want to say to my pro fellow program committeeers, um, you, nobody gave me any things they wanted to have discussed. So um, uh, the chief actually suggested we talk about the, you, you will like this toy, the District 10 uh, safety plan. And um, I have a request into uh, um, young community developers and uh, Shimon Walton's office to see if they are interested in presenting on the District 10 safety plan, what the, what the status of it is. Um, so I gather a bunch of people in the department are interested. And uh, so I'll move ahead with that if they're available and that will be a one item agenda item and commissioner rodkin uh two things one is i mean so we're work we're working with them on it but i think it may be something that's of interest to all of our partners um and then the other thing is that i am, have realized that they are also doing a town hall on it next wednesday night so their response may be Come to the town hall if you want to learn about it. So yeah, I I mean I'm feeling together. I'm feeling kind of lukewarm about the whole idea. Um, because if we're just doing it for the sake of doing it, I thought we we're doing it because you had people that were interested in coming. I I feel like people may be feeling kind of OD'd with all these meetings, and so maybe and given they're having a town hall maybe we just defer the program committee for another month yes, oh, um, okay sounds like a good idea to me because i'm going to be out of country this weekend oh i won't be pressing that okay meeting, i'm going to be gone for a week okay guys that's it for the program committee Still have to call up. I think James will be available, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fine, uh, Commissioner Brockett. I think we can put it off and see until we have something to come that comes up. <coughs> and I for your turn. I know in the comments that um, Ms. Silva Ray reminds us that we do 15 days 
to notify the public of ad hoc meetings. Uh, so we should just keep that in mind as we confer with her on availability and scheduling that committee meeting. Also, President Ariano has called in and is listening in, uh, but I believe that means he's unable to voice himself. Um, any other future agenda items or announcements? Any public comment on this? Please press star three. Do we have any hands raised, emails, anyone in the queue? Uh, no hands raised. No, e no emails. Hearing no public comment requests, then I move to adjourn for tonight. So move. Is there a second? Or is Everybody have a good night. Good night, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Have, have a good, good night. Yeah. See you guys. Bye.